Every time I turn around, he seems to be celebrating a goal. Alan is meant to be the difference in the Champions League. You know, they want one when it's a tight semi-final. He'll score one in a tight semi-final too. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. I do look. I do look happy with you. Oh, there you go. You can tell. Tom. Is this is this too much information territory, or is no. this exactly what the, you've got to give the people what they want, Colm? No, I wasn't expecting that. What are answer. your? What you, uh, I was just so, saying. Good everyone. morning to everybody. It's Hi, half everyone. past seven. How are you? I was just saying there to my colleagues, Darren Shane. Um, I have a thing about watching people brush their teeth, in that I can't. A phobia. I can't. Yeah, I have a, exactly. A phobia, rather than a thing. To get more technical about it, I cannot watch anyone brush their teeth, including myself. Can't even look at myself in the mirror. And when it's because not- of the foam. The foam. Yeah. I don't mind uh, even the word toothpaste sends a shiver down my spine. You serious? Yeah. But I, I must stress, I look after my teeth very well, I'll have you know. So there's no problem there with the hygiene aspect. You never look it. at it. But the you never visual. Look at the foam. It's the foaming at the mouth thing. There's, uh, there's some kind of like. I brush your teeth. Because the boy Hannon here says to me, uh, you don't mind me saying this, Not do you? Not at all. Um, that he would sometimes occasionally share a toothbrush with his brother. Now, the, the funny thing is, this could be news Managing to my people. brother. This could be so. If Dara, if you're watching this morning, there was one. There was one day I said to Dara, it was a joke. It was like a trend on TikTok. I said, Dara, where, where's our toothbrush? And he shouted, "What? Where's our toothbrush gone?" He said, "What? What the? Do you mean our toothbrush? Where's your toothbrush?" So yeah, that that uh, struck a chord with him. You've a ridiculously tight knit family. Quite tight knit, yeah, 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 yeah. We're all we're all very similar ages. It's two, 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 you two. Share. Or maybe you can. Maybe it's uh, better to share when you're closer in age. No, we actually don't really share. But like, it's it's an emergency situations, you know. This is a real thing. Uh, odontoropophobia. Oh. Odontoropophobia. I never looked right. at this. I never, you see, I wouldn't even Google it. And so is this, is this everybody? Like even, even your wife? I, yeah, I did say, yeah, I can't look at anyone. It doesn't matter who you are. So Nothing. you can't share a bathroom then? It's no, she'll of... be like, I'm brushing my teeth, I'll close the door now. Like, yeah, great. Oh, that, wow, is... that is... Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> she understands immediately she understood this. Right. Thankfully she never watches this, so this is totally, I can say that. And how, how soon into dating did you tell her this This. this I think, well, I think she track. got the, the hint very quickly when I was like, uh, freaked out, like, Jeez, can't do it. And I, I wouldn't even look up to myself, like, it is, it's a real problem. But then again, and you, you know what's weird? If you've got everything. Uh, no, I just know by feel. And okay. also... Uh, the other thing as well is I actually don't even mind the dentist that much. You know, people have a huge fear of the dentist. Mm. I, I tolerate it. I don't like it, but I tolerate it. So it's just, it's just the brushing. Do you the get your lollipop at the end as it's well? It's the visual. Why would they give you a lollipop in a dentist? Because you it negates the whole. You're a good boy. You done. didn't cry for the dentist. It negates the whole uh, health of the teeth. <laughs> if you're going to give you sugar straight away. Uh, I also have to apologise to everybody, to uh, the uh, annoyed producer and to all my colleagues for not wearing green today. I I did get the memo. I just forgot. This is a joke, by the way. It uh, it was difficult. But great Baldoyle United shirt there, says Fergus Kyo. Shane takes me back. Yeah. It's, what does it say? What, what is it? Easy Soul. Easy Soul Athletics. Plug, plug to them, whoever they are. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of like giving me Celtic retro vibes, but Henny's Finest. It's actually not Penny's. Is it? Oh, maybe it is pennies. I don't know. It, it could be. It could well be pennies. It sounds like a made-up That name. sounds like, yeah, yeah. I've cool. noticed the loose fit is going back into fashion. It's quite a loose fit, yeah. Yeah. I, not, I, I noticed it with all the youngins. You're wearing the days. camouflage green. Yeah. I, I nearly forgot to. Myself and Emma Carroll out there. So this is a disgrace, by the way. We, we, it's not like... It is a form of green. It'd be bad enough if we just came in today and didn't wear green. But the fact that we planned it, it was like, oh yeah, 
It was on, it was on the WhatsApps last night. Yep, that's where green tomorrow. <coughs> the show before Paddy's Day. Uh, if anything, I texted too early about it. I texted too early about it. You know. Too early, right? See, if you're in a group of three people on WhatsApp, like it's very hard to avoid Mark communication because I'll see that you've read it. I put a reminder on my phone for this morning when I woke up. I was That's like, good. "Where green?" Good of you. Yeah. It's good to be organised as presenter, isn't it? That's, you know what? It pays pays off, doesn't it? Because then you get to wear green, represent your country, be patriotic. Sorry, we're chatting here as if there was no sport last night. Mm. Well, so much happening. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was a reasonable effort from Liverpool, yeah. but like, was it? I I think so. What else are you going to do? You're up against. I mean, the reason you're five two down is because you're up against a really, really, really. Well, good look, team. there is that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, they needed to score three times and they didn't score at all. Like, I know, correct. But like, <laughs> no, but like, you're old they, school punditry. No, but if you if you have James, you, see, you have James Milner on the pitch. You have James Milner on the pitch, and you're trying to beat Real Madrid by three goals at the Bernabeu. If 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 we could somehow live in. Um, in one of your alternative dimensions where actually Jose Mourinho is the manager he would literally be pointing up to the director's box at Marie, at um, <laughs> Milner and going this is your fault so, you, you did this to us so maybe Klopp is doing the same thing except in his more polite yeah. manner more sophisticated more urbane manner it's like I've got James Milner out there lads a lot of they the, have Vinicius Junior. Rio Ferdinand was making the point last night that a lot of Liverpool's acquisitions in recent years just weren't aren't part of their their starting plans. Then they buy players and then they're you know they bypass the players. They're, they're sitting on the bench for for large swathes of the season of the season, which is not good. Like, well, there was such a period of time where everything hit, where all the recruitment was so spectacular that took carried them to a league and carried them to a Champions League, and since then it has been you know in and out at best, hit well, and miss. Why is he taking off Darwin Nunez in the second half? I, I don't know. I thought Darwin Nunez was... <coughs> sorry. I thought he was excellent in the first half. He nearly scored twice. But in a uh, true goal in the seventh minute when uh, Danny Carvel had an yeah, overhit yeah. pass back to Antonio Rudiger. Mo Salah intercepted. Couldn't quite get away himself. So fed in Nunez who had a decent... Like one of his kind of rasping shots that are, aren't particularly well directed <laughs> but like have a power. But straight at Courtois who... You just realise the difference between a world-class goalkeeper and the rest in that he makes... So many shots seem average when actually they're quite good. Alisson too. He has both of them are excellent. Like, like especially in the first half, there were eighteen shots between both teams going in nil nil at half time. It was remarkable that the game was scoreless at the interval, and both keepers, as you say, Shane, pulled off a string of great saves. But Liverpool had to score that goal in the seventh minute. Yeah, and from then on in, it was really Real Madrid who came closest. Like Luka Modric had a great shot which just went over Camavinga. See that left footed shot, slight deflection off James Milner and a little touch from Alisson onto the crossbar. That's some safe. But Camavinga is some player. Like I know Casemiro is the one who asked to leave Real Madrid. They don't want to lose him. But when you have Camavinga stepping into the Casemiro role, like you're doing, you're doing quite well. Pretty good. And you just realise how strong that Madrid squad is when. They're bringing on Chouamani, who played every single game for France at the World Cup. The only player to start, only outfield player to start every game. And he comes on towards the end of the match. You have uh, Marco Asensio, who six years ago, around 2016-17, was seen as the next great Spanish striker. Yeah. He can only come on now these days. And yet they're nine points behind Barcelona and La Liga with the Clasico happening this Sunday night. But I was watching it last night thinking, geez, lads, <clears throat> will we have to change the running order? Tomorrow, will this be another Liverpool historical European night? But this was no Barcelona 2019, Real Madrid 2023, or a different kettle of fish altogether. And Madrid, in general, have their number over Liverpool, with the exception of 2019 when Liverpool won the Champions League against Tottenham. They've been eliminated the last six years at the hands of Real mostly, two finals, a quarter final, last 16, and Atletico in the COVID year, the, when COVID literally broke out 2020, and they lost to Atletico at Anfield. 
So they have this uh, Madrid voodoo they do. that um, oh, so Pop Lu- cannot get over. Luka Modric. They did another bit of great punditry here. Luka Modric is a good footballer. He is good at football. And they won the Champions League in Madrid. They did. Which was yeah. nice they did. So there's a little caveat to that. Yeah. Um, look, if the game was over, I thought that the first half was interesting and mm. exciting. And then they just needed to score immediately at the start of the second half. And they couldn't do that. And then it was game over. Yeah, if it got to two, it would have been exciting, really interesting, because then you'd, you'd almost fancy Liverpool at that stage. Isn't the real story from last night that Napoli are going to win this thing, and that's going to be one of the greatest stories <coughs> since Porto winning it? Napoli. Yeah. I mean, they had uh, problems before the game to see all the, the crowd. I actually missed the, it. I, yeah. I saw headlines. I didn't see. Eintracht Frankfurt's ultras came into town, and you know, it, it got real messy, and there was a good few viral clips on social, actually, um, of just kind of everything you would imagine that would happen in a brawl between Seth fans outside the stadium but uh, lucky the football started and the game went ahead as normal but like yeah like Gerard, like you say like they're absolutely flying in Serie A and they made Eintracht Frankfurt look very ordinary I'm yeah. not saying Frankfurt are a great side or anything but they're much better than what they looked last night and that was purely down to Napoli and there's a chance they can keep the team together this isn't that great Monaco side where Mbappe you knew was going to get picked off and all the rest of his good teammates were going to get picked off as well they're going to win the league they have owners who can afford to pay everybody the bonuses they need they're deep in the Champions League now and if they get a good draw they could go all the way to the final yeah but then the likes of Osimhen and Kvaratskhelia if they if they win Serie A which they will win Serie A and go deep in the Champions League and they're not going to then go well We've kind of hit a plateau here. Well, what, what more are we going to do with Napoli? You could win a Champions League. You could do what yeah. Maradona couldn't do. You could definitely join a bigger European side and have a better chance of winning the Champions League. I usually think there's a ceiling with teams like this where they unexpectedly perform very well. But if you look at Napoli, like if you want to stay in Italy and play your football in Serie A, there's no better side than Napoli. Is this, so is why, this would, why would you leave? Is, Unless it's money. Is this Napoli's Leicester City year? Or is that no, that's what I mean. That's exactly what I was thinking when I said that. that yeah, Leicester yeah. City... like. I remember thinking Leicester City should have taken the next season off if that was at all possible because they were never going to do as well as they did mm. that year. But with Napoli, it's different. Like you're talking about more than just, say, Jamie Vardy and Riyad Mahrez yeah. for Leicester. They have a whole host of brilliant players and potentially Kante. two or three world-class one. And N'Golo Kante, which we'll get to later yeah. on in the show. You got kept forgetting N'Golo Kante. Segway. He's only there for a year. I know, yeah, that's true. I did forget him. And you know what's mad about Kante that year? He was a squad player. Originally, only played one season at Leicester and they played him on the left wing. Claudio Ranieri start, played him on the left when he brought him on. And then within six months, you're talking about one of the greatest holding midfielders. Or yeah. Actually, all, sorry, all-round midfielders. Did he win Premier League Player of the Year? He didn't, no. He Did he not? Up yesterday. Uh, he, he, Mares and Vardy got the two Shared awards. Oh, right. Now, Mares got the players and Vardy got the football writers. Right, right. I don't know if anybody cares about the football writers. I guess you show up in your tux and you, you take it, but everybody... It's the players award is the one that everybody uh, talks about and it was... Um, it was Riyad Mahrez who got that so mm. um, I don't know sorry can we talk about Crystal Palace we don't ever talk about Palace Never that was not what I was expecting right. sorry, can, we, can we talk about Crystal Palace right because when we were talking about the relegation battle eight weeks ago yeah. I got lampooned lambasted by the commenters and some of the people in the studio when I was like oh Palace aren't safe they're definitely not safe they could easily sink like a stone I'm not, I'm not saying I told you so but I told you so told me the Newcastle are going to finish fourth this year definitely well, there's still a chance of that. We will wait to see if that happens. We will wait. But can I, I just wanted to say about Palace, right? Before That's we a on. lie, by the way. And it, when the lies are made, you need to call them out you did early me. and often. That's a Luckily, lie. there's a clip of that somewhere. I'll find it. <laughs> Someone's it. lying. <laughs> Someone's lying, yeah. <laughs> Frankly Googling. Someone's lying. Now, Palace, right? As Emma's just reminded me here, we have live commentary of Palace's trip to Arsenal this Sunday. <laughs> but the reason I brought them up right there, it is on screen. Uh, they're 12th, Crystal Palace. 
That's good. That's game good punditry now as well. In 2023, New Year's Eve, they went to Bournemouth and won 2 0. They have not won a game this year and they're 12th. That, like the Premier League table is nuts. Mm. And also, Palace finally got a shot and target last night in the Derby defeat to Brighton and Old Albion because in the three games prior, they didn't have a single shot on target in the Premier League for three games in a row. I'm just saying, Patrick Vieira had a great start as Crystal Palace manager, but I think he's getting away with it a little bit mm. in comparison to Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard and other great former midfielders turned managers that Vieira and Palace are kind of going under the radar. But at the same time, I've heard one or two more people say that now. And maybe it's getting to the point where people are like, when they used to say, James Miller's underrated. And so many people said it, that he became rated. Well, he's under pressure. That was the story that broke in the last two days. Essentially, you've got to start winning games or or we're going to fire you. Like So I would say he's most likely to be fired next because everybody else is actually managing to get results and win games and go on a mini run. And then before, you know, we we see them have uh, bad form. So, Mm. um, So who's... The you only think, thing, though, he's uh, going to. You think he should go? Basically, is what you're saying, Colin. Oh, no, I see. They, the thing with Palace is they don't get hammered. They only keep losing they, one. They do not get hammered. And like Phil Egan was making the point this morning in the office, and it's very true. Like because they're not getting hammered, they're not standing out. They're just losing by the occasional odd goal. Yeah. So therefore, it's like, oh well, it's Palace. And what more do you expect? But it's just the fact that they, the confidence must be completely drained from them. And it's not like they don't have talent in that final third. Yeah, but sometimes for a team like that, all you need is the international break. And now they've got it. And like their fixtures afterwards are not that well. They've got they've got Arsenal away first of all, which is obviously a tough one. But then Leicester home, Leeds away, Southampton away, Everton home. But they're not of, getting shots on targets. I know, but they're all six pointers though. They are massive games. Um, Jesus, yeah, hundred percent. The sack race. If you're interested, the odds on the next Premier League manager to leave their club. David Moyes is still favoured at thirteen to eight. Patrick Vieira is five to two. Antonio Conte is five to two. Rogers is five to one. No manager to leave for the rest of the season. It's twenty to one. I wouldn't be taking no manager to leave at this stage. Someone's going to panic. But uh, I don't think Rogers is going to go because they would have. That would all have happened before now. Conte, I think, is probably going to see the end of the season out because they would have made the move yeah. after the European game if they thought they were going to make that move. Maybe the international break gives them an opportunity to have the conversation with Enrique and Tuchel and whoever. But I do feel like if you're the manager coming in, you want the off season. And you want the Harry Kane situation to be sorted one way or another and not be. I realise that that's not what Martin Lipton told us on the show. I, I disagree. Um, and then it's Vieira or Moyes. And Moyes, if they lose tonight in Europe or get a bad result tonight, you can see that happening immediately. But if they win, that's a stay of execution. So, Patrick Vieira, come on down, baby. You next. <laughs> Join us. Yeah, no, I think Palace will be okay. Genuinely, they might, no, they might be fine. I'm sure there are three worse teams than Crystal Palace, but staying up by default isn't exactly inspiring. Are there three worse teams at the moment? I think Southampton you know, are going to go. You, you, well, well, literally the bottom three at the moment: Bournemouth, Leeds, Southampton. Yeah, I think that's a f- fair shout. Um, I'm surprised that Wolves are doing well. Julian Lopetegui has done a decent job there. Well, Bournemouth, Bournemouth have looked good the last couple of games against Liverpool and, and Arsenal, but can well, they, they have? Can they keep that going? It's actually a pretty strong Premier League this season, I have to say, because Southampton were were decent spells at Old Trafford last weekend. And last night they lost 2-0 at home to Brentford, which isn't a great result. Brentford, that's only their third away victory in the Premier League. But Southampton actually dominated that second half, particularly. Gavin Bazunu, incidentally, made a fantastic save from Brian Umbemo at 0-0. After They're gone. Minutes. So I, think, I do think oh. Southampton are gone. They're starting to become a little Leeds, bit detached. Happy Grassi is a good manager. He will get them sorted a bit. They, they drew 2-2 with Brighton, high-flying Brighton last weekend. They might be okay, but I, I, there's probably three worse teams in Palace. Yeah. Well, can I just point that out? Like... Uh, Palace, for anybody who's unfamiliar with the table at the moment, have 27 points in 27 games played. Leeds have a game in hand and are four points behind. Mm-hmm. Bournemouth 
are three points behind and have a game in hand. West Ham are three points behind and have a game in hand. And Southampton are obviously five points behind and have played the same number of games. So you'd say Southampton, unless they absolutely go on a mad run, are gone. But everybody else have games in hand and are just three points behind. Superior goal difference, but, uh, you know, it's plenty of time for for Palace to collapse. So I don't know. I ain't, I ain't writing Palace uh, into the safety books just yet. No, could be one of the great relegation battles. What was the year? Was it West Brom? 2005, yeah. yeah. Madness. West Bromwich have been set up at the expense of. Um, who went there? Give us more year? of that, please. Come on. What about uh, what about Brighton qualifying for the Champions League? It's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It couldn't happen. But they're right there. Yeah, couldn't happen. No, I'm not saying it could happen. But it like they are still sticking around like a bad smell. Mm. Evan Ferguson obviously dropped last night. Comes off the bench. You know, good of him to rest. Yeah, Evan Ferguson fresh in advance of the big game against France. Yeah, yeah, Not yeah. such good news from Adam Eda's perspective. No. Started started well. Started on the wing, which is interesting. Yeah. That could be a place to get him into the team for Ireland as like a that kind of third midfielder style person who's also an outlet ball when you don't have it and you might need when you're hoofing the ball clear against France mm. to have I, I I there's no we were talking to Vinnie Perth about this, there's no real way to get Eda and Ferguson in the team together. But there might be if you know, if you're playing him a bit deeper. Well not now. He made the goal and then comes off injured before half time. So we we haven't had an official no. bulletin yet from Norwich. But uh, he's he actually had those knee troubles for for a significant period of time. He's had surgery on the knee as well. So yeah, it is a worry because he did great for the goal. Like yeah. outpaces full back, cut back on his right foot, beautiful laugh across into the box to two of his teammates. Actually, yeah. either one of them could he can't catch it, a so. break. That was a third start in a row, and everyone's like, "Oh, he's back on a roll now." And then the injury happens again. It's like this. Either just can't catch a break. Um, Okay, 100% agree with Colm. It's gross. There's a scene in the movie Bring It On where they're brushing together. No need for it. Well, uh, yeah, obviously use different toothbrushes if you, if, if you have that option. But I'm just saying if you're... It's not about the different toothbrushes. It's about the visual for me. That's bizarre, I have to say. It's uh, 7.48 this morning here on OTBAM. If you're uh, listening to us as you brush your teeth, then don't tell Colm. Uh, coming up, Fiona Hayes is standing by. We're going to talk to her right now about Ireland and England. Graeme Hunter's with us at 10 past 8. Finney Park is going to join us a little bit after half eight. We're actually with John Duggan at half eight and then uh, talking Cheltenham. Uh, we'll hear from Philippe O'Claire on You Had to Be There today as well. And uh, we'll play out some Ian Keatley uh, OTBAM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night edition available now. Right, Fiona Hayes is with us. Fiona, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, lads. How are you? Yeah, good. Um, what's your instinct about how mad the country is getting in advance? I was all for the madness early in the week, and now as the game approaches, I'm like, oh, we're just going to, we might be losing the run of ourselves here a bit. Uh, look, we have to be a bit confident. It's very Irish not to be confident, isn't it? Um, I think, I suppose, after last week's performance and how the lads went under such adversity and played like that, I think that brought the excitement and it's just continued throughout the week. So, you know, I, I'm a bit of a calm head, but I'm super excited all week myself thinking about the game on Saturday. The English team have come over a little bit earlier than usual. Apparently, this is how they're going to behave at the World Cup. You've got to be in the, in the uh, city of the game earlier and they're doing that now to replicate what they're going to be like. So they're going to be soaking up all of our complacency, all of our celebrations, all of our preparations. <laughs> we can just pretend it's all for St. Patrick's Day. They don't know that it's not, that actually this is all specifically for the rugby this weekend. Spot on. You can disguise it in Patrick's Day. You're, you're dead right there. Yeah, look, they're coming over. I think, obviously, they're under Bortwick. They're trying to get the regime and feel their way out going into this World Cup. Um, I'm sure, you know, there's no one 
the players themselves are aware that there will be an English backlash and like it is to be expected. But I, I just feel there's such a buzz in the atmosphere, the players and how they're talking, the calmness, especially when we heard, you know, when such adversity, as I said, and at half time they were smiling inside in the dressing room. It just shows you what type of team and squad is there that anything can hit them and they're just smiling. They're mentally prepared and they have their eye on, you know, they know they're number one ranked team in the world and that brings added pressure, but they seem to be going into every game just kind of with smiles on their faces and really enjoying it, which is something I haven't seen in our squad in a long time. The news this morning is that the probable teams all do include Dan Sheehan. Now, we'll wait and see exactly what the Mm. team is named, but that would be absolutely massive. Caelan Doris also named to start in the probable teams this morning. And, you know, we've been suggesting the whole way along that... um, People are getting a tip off uh, from inside the camp when those teams are are being yeah. put forward. That's like literally the most important news. You know, it's great that we have Robbie Henshaw back, but those two suddenly take us from uh, being a little bit concerned about our strength and depth to having a really strong bench again. Yeah, look, I mean, Sheehan and Doris, we know exactly what they can bring, and it's it's that it's that bench that came on in the last game. You know, they came on and done a job, and I think it's the mentality there at the minute that anyone in that squad has the confidence to do that but I mean the likes of Dan Sheen he's just been outstanding I think he's only he's only missed one line out so far in all the minutes he's played with Ireland and I'm sure he blamed the jumpers and lifters for that one but I mean his stats are through the roof and we all know what Doris I mean we're talking about him week in week out he's just immense as a ball carrier and out and out eight um, and it's something I, I, I think uh, England are struggling with themselves I haven't seen enough for, from Don Brandt to, to show me like that he's up there with world class eight so I think we're we're haunted with the players we have but it's the confidence that's in these guys and it's brilliant to hear that and I think you're right I think the general squads that are released um, they're normally spot on when it comes to that naming day um, We're expecting Fiona Jemison Gibson Park to start at scrum half this weekend I mean I thought Conor Murray did well against the Scots considering, considering it wasn't exactly a normal service from the pack given all the injuries but um, it makes sense to put Gibson Park straight back in there for a game of this magnitude Absolutely. Look, and in the minutes he played, he made such a huge impact. I mean, um, it's very easy standing on the outside to say, you know, it was much slower with Murray, but he had to feel his way through the game. They had to find their way. And I think when Gibson Park came on, obviously sitting on the bench, you've loads of energy. He just provided that speed. And I mean, the skill set he showed, that beautiful pass from that break down the wing back inside. He's just a player in form and Murray has been outstanding and is really fitted into that role. But I think it's, it's the right choice to start Gibson Park England like a slow game they like a kicking game you know their back three will love for the ball to just be coming at them they're they're so narrow in their carries I think Gibson Park will really really speed up that ruck and we'll, if we can get under three second ruck you'll really cause damage to England out wide especially because that's where they were caught against the French Obviously the home advantage is is a great thing for us we get to, we get to hopefully see a grand slam in Dublin, um, I mean, it's the first on home soil since Ravenhill in 1948 and it's been Cardiff and, and Twickenham since. I guess we're all looking at the positives of that, Fiona, and that, oh, this is a brilliant opportunity. But then mm. it, it adds weight to the occasion, I'm sure, as well, for the players. Not saying these players aren't fully capable of, of dealing with mm. weight, weight in their shoulders like that, but it certainly adds a, a, an extra element of pressure to the game. 
oh yeah, huge pressure, you know, especially as you say, on Paddy's Day, people, everyone's going to be out with their hats, their jerseys, everything. And because they've played so well, there isn't even a hint of, of, of atmosphere that these guys could lose on the game. But I think the pressure is there. And I think Andy Farrell has provided that mentality in the squad that they're able to deal with. England will, there will be an, a backlash. They can't possibly play as bad as they played last week. I mean, um, you know, as I, I spoke about the, the back row were non-existent. I thought the, the front row didn't do much. So they would have looked at their stats and they'll definitely be looking at improving that. But I just don't think that English players compared to what we have over here at the minute and the form that our guys are in will be able to, to really get after Ireland. It probably will be a bit of a, a slow start and they will try and slow down the game. But I think the fitness of, of, of this Irish team will absolutely shine through. And as we spoke and we saw the bench last week, these guys are going to be chomping at the bit to come on and make a massive impact as well. Uh, the the two respective back rows with with Doris back in the team um, and that's like a bi- I think it's a big assumption I really hope that's true and that we're not roping open the English into thinking oh they're going to have their full team and then all of a sudden it emerges we don't and I just uh, who knows right I'm sure yeah. there's a lot of high stakes poker going on with this stuff it'd be out of character for Ireland and so that in itself would be a bit of a change and a bit of a red flag but if 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 the two back rows are as we expect them to be can you talk to us a little bit about the respective difference in strength. Um, look, I think if we think we're going with, I mean, we know exactly with Doris, um, uh, if you, are you, are you campaigning the back rows, the Irish back rows to the English back rows? Or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So look, I mean, we've got a world class seven. Um, absolutely. We all know, or should I call him a world class hooker at this stage? But we know, we know exactly what Van der Fleer is capable of. He's just immense. And I think there's a massive difference between himself and Willis. I watched Willis last week. I'm a huge fan. Um, he gets turnovers. He's in the breakdown. Um, he's doing monster stuff over in Toulouse. But when I look at Van der Fleer, it's his ability to, he's a smaller kind of, uh, back row, but it's his ability. He's sidestep he can he can carry around players he links up so well with with the backs he's able to provide he's you know he's got every part of aspect of his game is just there and he's he's so good and Willis is a devil at the breakdown and he gets inside there but last week I was just disappointed I found that he was sticking his head into a lot of dead rocks I've seen him doing it a couple of times and the game just got away from him and you know if we're looking at the eights um, I mean <laughs> I'm saying world class for Van der Fleer I think Caelan Doris is on the way up there he's he's been uh, brilliant for Ireland so far and Don Brandt huge fan as well I'm watching him with Harlequins the last couple of seasons and, and he has the ability to make an impact but he's he, he he really disappointed me watching him last week a lot of players have come out and said look it's you can't blame the H you can't blame the back row but just he's carries into contact I think he caught once from a restart was stopped he was already turned waiting for the contact and stopped dead at that point and I think that's the difference between these um, English guys and, and our own ball carriers is we're constantly the our back row are getting gain line and it's due to their footwork they're able to get around they're hitting the soft shoulders and their link play with the back line especially with sex in ring rows when he's on we can see that they're well capable of of hands of passing out the wing whereas the back row in England I don't know if they're coached to do it I feel like when we see them and especially if they're coming off a, a scrum at speed especially Don Brandt there's no ability really to pass to a 12 I feel like he just carries straight into contact and the defence just loves that because they're able to shoot up and, and stop him dead at source it, the way you're describing that, it sounds like they're still very much conscious about what they're trying to do. And they're like, OK, I'm going to catch this ball. And I'm going to do what I did in coaching all week this week, as opposed to uh, I know what I'm doing. And so it's going to be second nature to me. It's that split second of a difference between 
fully understanding and implementing a game plan that has been well honed over a long period of time to I need to think about what it is that I'm supposed to do to make the coaching staff happy and that's I think the thing that gives us most comfort is that we're we're a good bit further down the line than this England team at the moment the caveat to that of course is that they're going to pick a 10, 12 and 13 who have experience of coming to Ireland and pooping a party where we expected <laughs> the last time they were here it's like oh we're going to win the Grand Slam and then we're going to go out and win the World Cup and then uh, <laughs> and then they blew us apart in the opening 20 minutes of that game um, is that four years ago now? yeah yeah, yeah. so um uh, Owen Farrell at ten is what the English papers are saying. Uh, mm. Slade at twelve, uh, sorry, two laggy twelve and Slade at thirteen. That's the exact same combination. Now those three can't fix it, but no, you know we're seeing ghosts. Yeah, look, I'm not. I'll be honest with you. I'm not too worried. I know that there is going to be, as I spoke about earlier, there will be a backlash for the first twenty minutes. I mean, Tuilagi hasn't got much rugby under his belt. You know, he has been injured. Then he's been in and out of favour because of those injuries over the years. So he he hasn't really got the same connection that I would have seen with Farrell before. Um, Slade, um, I, I wouldn't be, not that I'm not a huge fan of him, I wouldn't feel like he's a massive threat, especially in the centre. I don't feel like, I think Ireland have a capability to deal with these guys. In the past, England picked these big ball runners, you know, it won a pole at eight and you had two laggy running down the neck of, of defences. Whereas I think defences have sorted that out now. They're able to chop these guys low and their system, I think the Irish defence system in watching them from start to finish this Six Nations, even, even from the All Blacks from that second game, they just are all on the same sheet. I know that out wide there was connection issues between maybe 13 and, and James Lowe, but their, their hustle and their work rate is what sorts that out. They're able to get across they're able to to bring that line speed because they can get up together so I think Ireland will definitely they will know that they're going to be targeting that area but I don't think these guys have had enough game time together to be able to make such a huge impact I think there's a lot been said as well uh, Fiona even any time I've been down at those press conferences in Abbottstown the Gary Keegan's name has come up, the, the mind guru yeah. behind this team, and, and you can kind of sense it in the in the, the, the build-up, in, in the press conferences, like even, they're quite relaxed, Mac Hansen joking about the fact that, oh, everybody mm. hates England, you know, quotes that were picked yeah. up in the Telegraph this week over the over this, uh, the Irish Sea. <laughs> um, even Tyke Furlong saying, you know, if you can't get excited for the, for the game this weekend, then why are you even involved in sport? Th- there seems to be something, even in the words coming out of the players' mouths, that that's, you sense that they're a bit different this year. Yeah, definitely. And watching them in those press conferences, as I said, they're they're enjoying the rugby. They look natural. They're able to talk. Um, obviously, I, I, they're well trained in in what to say and what not to say. But look, they 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 seem to be confident. And it's Gary Keane is just it's with Andy Farrell. You know, he's he's constantly pushing that mentality and being able to to think like champions all the time. You're just focusing on the next game, and I think that's what's really worked for this team is that they were never looking at a Grand Slam they were never looking at a World Cup it was literally every focus when they talk obviously the reporter's going to ask them questions about you know Grand Slams and and, and we're going to win the World Cup now but it's good for them you, they, they bring it back to earth and I, I would imagine he's brought Gary Keane has brought that to him you live in the moment and they're living in the moment enjoying the rugby and playing with a smile on their face uh, the complexity thing is a real thing though right like there, we, we are this week l- looking at everybody asking can you pay proper testimony to Johnny Sexton like he's dead and he's not <laughs> he's got a match to play this weekend and the English back row and Tuilagi are going to be targeting him in the first 10-15 minutes to try and spoil our party so like you know 
uh, the 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 lads earlier wanted to have a conversation about should we stop the game whenever uh, sorry Fiona should we stop the game whenever Sexton breaks the record yeah. like, maybe we should just win this game and get it done first that's my point that was my point the whole uh, the record breaking is ridiculous yeah in the, in the basketball in the NBA should they stop the game uh, I know I saw that and the big and LeBron and they all just clap and I was like this is absolutely ridiculous and they went on and lost the game didn't they yeah. but it was a regular season game this is actually a, there's a big trophy at the end of this this is the final well, do you think if Sexton kicks a penalty in the first few minutes, I don't think he'll even smirk. Oh, he'll, uh, no, the, the crowd, the, the will, crowd go will go mad, but yeah, I, don't, I don't think I, he'll I even think, register. I think they're it, sure he was celebrating the conversions last week. Yeah, in a way that we never see because I think there it's were points make, on the board. I, I think it means something to him. But I, if yeah. Anyway, I agree. I think it was just it was the game was so tight, and obviously he'd missed that first conversion. So I'd say it was more of a pressure in that tight game. I think he'll just kick it a, a slight little smile. Um, I remember reading an article. I think it was yesterday. And I thought it was hilarious, and it was about um his son that he, his son doesn't come onto the pitch if they lose. You know, so we know he's got that mi- he's winning mentality. I, I think he'll just give a, a little smirk and be back to business straight away because that's what Keegan is in there. This is what he's doing with these guys. He knows to a lag he's going to be running down. His channel, he's got to get him mentally prepared, and they've been doing this for a long time now. So you're not worried about the complacency and the fact that we're we're celebrating our like I think you know most rugby fans are uh, planning mm. what their Grand Slam party is going to be like. They want to make sure <laughs> that they're watching this game with the, you know like there's, a, there's just a little bit of this where the whole conversations now turn to. Oh, I hope the players aren't listening to any of this. <laughs> yeah, I do. I think we're all celebrating and it's very unusual because normally we're like, oh, we'll lose the last game. You know, we like to uh, look at the down points. But I, I think the players, I'd say they're not even listening to, obviously you you, saw, you hear the noise around it and they are, but I, I, I really feel like since since that New Zealand test, we're looking at a different animal. They're able to deal with that adversity. The players that are available um, are playing for their, their provinces week in, week out, really good rugby we've had a couple of knocks we're able to get guys in the squad that are able to continue with the same ability I mean the likes of Tom O'Toole I wouldn't have been speaking him about him before, until these Six Nations and he's just completely stepped up so it's like they have this atmosphere in the camp that when you get onto that cauldron when you get onto the pitch everyone around you is supporting you and they just look like they're as I said living in that moment and playing so I, I, I firmly believe they know exactly what England are going to bring in they've spoke about it in all the press conferences so I'd say they're fully focused and Andy Farrell will have his game plan down to the T. All right, Fiona, good stuff. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. No worries, guys. Thanks a million. See you later. That's Fiona Hayes giving us our thoughts there. Um, I do. I do see a pathway for England to win this game. I, I like. Uh, you know, we traditionally when we would have been beating England before we got good, there were even in the nineties there was a couple of years where we won games where they were like mm. uh, the Will Carling team, who were cocky. It's fair to say and expectant of victory and uh, we would have a smash and grab the the Mick Galway team um, they had a smash and grab we, we won two games back to back in Ireland obviously not in Twickenham and uh, Eric Elwood you know kicked like do you see a world where we have some significant injuries early in the game caused by the aggression of Manu Tulagi I do I see a world where we suffer our first yellow or red card you know because of an accidental something or other yeah, but I see a world where uh, uh, Farrell kicks the ball into the corners they snaffle a line out and all of a sudden they're 7-0 up at half time or 7-3 up at half time 
Yeah, but these are all ifs and buts. Like all of uh, these things have to happen. Uh, but no, this is my point. The but path I, that's not that, that's not impossible. Is no, it's not impossible. The way we're going it's on highly about it. unlikely. It's very. The pathway to an England win is 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 not that difficult to see. It, it's it, look. Their forwards need to be better than our forwards, which would be the first time that's happened. But a tiny bit of complacency, a smidgen of complacency. People listening to should we stop the game whenever uh, Sexton scores? They're like, I mean, imagine if you're no. the English rugby team this morning listening to this <laughs> material for their for the dressing room wall. Or anyway, I and I I I I still think that the physicality involved uh, in rugby means that motivation is hugely important. Like but the motivation for Ireland is. Playing for all to see, like yeah, there's I, no okay. complacency whatsoever I, playing England. I ever. Hope, I hope. I hope you're right. I'm just not for this. Not for this wanna, team. I don't want to be a complete wet blanket. I just want to make sure that everybody's aware that uh, we're not just showing up to pick this trophy up. There is a game that's going to be played in advance of that moment. And fingers crossed, it all goes. You're just, you're just being really careful well. in case on Monday morning we come in here and England have won by a point, and it's like, well, I, 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 I urge complacency. No, let's I'm, lean into the fact that we're going to uh, batter them. Uh, look, I mean. That's the ideal outcome here, right? Hundred percent, and and I think it's actually one of them. It, it's a more likely outcome than than England win, like a fifteen point margin again. Frequently gets Scotland. overturned. Frequently gets overturned in in rugby. Every every match that we played against the All Blacks, we would have been double digit underdogs until the I'd say until the third test. Even I'd say we were probably double, double digit in the second test because bear in mind they spanked us in that first test. They absolutely hammered us. Mm. Now we butchered a lot of chances close to the goal line and they pretty much scored with their four efforts but we suffered you know we, and we had injuries so there's a world where this is like a swirly wet annoying miserable day and their scrum gets some kind of parody they don't even have to beat us they just need to get some kind of parody mm. not be a, a penalty machine and it scored us after 30 minutes and the injuries start to clock up Yeah, and we're like oh or we've got to go to uncontested scrums and are down a man because of injury. You know, like, which, which, just, happened, by the which way. Just, just happened last week. Yeah, I know. But like, hopefully it won't strike twice. Because we, we, we outthought the, the problem. I, I'm curious to see what the game management is going to be. If Ireland are 6-0 six, six to the good after a couple of penalties after, say, 20-25 minutes, and then we get a chance to either go for the post or kick for touch, like, what, what are the, what's the decision here? Like, are we going 9-0 up or are we going for the tries? There's a lot of decisions to be made in-game, and I'm fascinated to see what Johnny Sexton opts to do along with the rest of the, the leadership uh, team in, in, in that group so ah Jesus let's get ex- let's get behind them come on flexing I, 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 and I, confident I, I am behind them no more wet blankets I, I am behind them I'm looking forward to uh, to this I just want to make sure that we've considered the eventualities you know let's lean into our Irish lack of self-belief and confidence we're, we're Irish so when we bump into someone or someone bumps into us we say sorry that's what happens so let's let's stop doing that as a, as a nation let's just say no 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 you bumped into me you say sorry that's what this Irish team have, uh, have adopted, that attitude. Many years of trauma have just... Uh, been yes. OK, let's move on. Talk football. <laughs> Graham Hunter, good morning to you. How are you? Yeah, listen, whenever anybody bumps into me or where I bump, it's always their fault. So, shit, if you really need tutorials or lessons and that whole thing, do you send the team to me? I can teach you, don't worry. He needs, he needs <laughs> to go on a night out with you, Graham. <laughs> sorry, Graham, sorry. Life, just life. There you go. <laughs> Um, will we start with Real Madrid because uh, obviously they, they just they handled their business like a, a team of professionals last night they did I suppose but it, you know there's two sides to every story and I was sitting in the press conference last night listening to Jurgen Klopp saying you know we needed a really big performance we didn't give it early on I thought both keepers um, stood out in, in making sure that there, there weren't goals and I really 
Courtois saves from save from Darwin was extremely good, and as such, um, I, I felt the tide would have turned um, had, had Liverpool scored. In the um, for some strange reason, there was a, a relative jitteriness around Madrid, and I don't just mean I don't mean the media. I think that the players aren't used to that. You know, you've got a squad there at Roman who, who don't really do careful conservative nil nils. And in my opinion, they tried to win the game, ultimately got their reward. I thought that Vinicius's little um, assist just continues to add to his, his legends far too soon at 22. But to be in front of goal, to kind of flail at the ball and fall over and then stick out a little leg and punt it to Benzema meant eventually a win. Um, but they don't know how to conserve um, a, th- a three-goal away uh, lead. It's not been their modus operandi recently. Really, since they began to win consecutive um, Champions Leagues, an example would be 3-0 up against Juventus from Turin. And, you know, by the 90th minute, it was 3-3. And, OK, it was Cristiano gets the goal eventually to send them through. Last night was a really odd experience, <laughs> odd experience an odd challenge for them. That it's not really in their repertoire. Jen, I think we saw that. Um, we were talking yesterday about Pep and how we're, you know, it's actually, it's a bit of a privilege to be living through the experience of watching him try and solve the conundrum that he has at the moment of uh, having one of the greatest weapons in the history of football, but not really wanting to use it the way that everybody else thinks he should and uh, him wrestling with his, his principles. In a way, what's happening at, at Madrid is a completely different challenge, but we are living through like a wildness to their play while at the same time they're harvesting Champions Leagues. Like, and uh, it's great that they are so cavalier and attack-minded and that that is the, the thing that is delivering Champions Leagues as opposed to a sterile, Carnaccio-style Italian football where we're going to win this on penalties after 120 minutes, lads. Let's dig in. Yeah, they don't, they don't have that. Listen, as somebody who grew up, um, you know, I'm a lot older both of you, somebody who grew up watching, you know, Catanaccio football in, in Europe and... The, the staleness and, and also teams that copied that. There was a ripple effect, wasn't there, about like, um, they do your utmost to draw nil-nil away and then, you know, one one at home. As glorious as Nottingham Forest's triumphs were in Europe, the, some of their games and, and the final against Hamburg, you, you, you couldn't contrast it with what we're seeing today. Utterly glorious, inspirational in its time, but like, it, it almost seems a different sport that we're watching now and you pinpointed Real Madrid about being... It's an enjoyable watch. They're cavalier. I agree with all of that, and and they they barely have it in the nature to to defend in a serious way all over the pitch. It's like they're they're a little bit Jake Lamotta. It's got to be slug for slug, and if we're on the ropes, that's when we're our most dangerous because there's going to be a flurry of blows. It, it, I, I'm not suggesting that they have no idea at all about how to defend a lead. Had it been a one-goal advantage from Anfield, I think we'd have seen a lot more, say, shrewdness. I think we'd have seen them tactically more awake. I will say that um, although they eventually get the goal, by about midway through the second half, they'd shifted down a gear. And it wasn't defending, it wasn't really conservative, but they've looked relatively physically tired as a bunch. That isn't tailing off at the end of games because I think they've scored um, something like nine or ten goals after the 90th minute in the last 
15 matches right after the 80th minute sorry Joe. Uh, but but they've got a class cup coming up on Sunday it, it will be utterly decisive as to how the league goes if Madrid were to lose and I thought I saw them conserving energy in terms of the spark the press the intensity of their attacks and eventually they get their goal and, and you know they, they were consistently playing quick transition balls up through a Liverpool side which ebbed and flowed in terms of their own energy. I, I spoke to a lot of um, ex-professional footballers, whether it be from Spain or, or from the Premier League, um, in the build-up to the match. It's a mecca for for those who like to spend the time as, as TV co-commentators or analysts. And everybody said the same, you know, we don't know which Liverpool we're going to see. Something like a version of the one that, that beat Manchester United or the one that was pretty rank against Bournemouth, and, and nor did I. And for that reason, I thought Liverpool really intimate, and that didn't spark Madrid into life. Had Liverpool really landed two or three blows quickly, I think we could have seen an enormously good tie. I thought the tie could finish three T shows, what I know. Nonetheless, Madrid march on, and there was a brilliant moment at the end. I, I don't know, I, neither, <clears throat> neither of you were in the Bernabeu because you had to be um, up early for the show this morning, and I don't know how much um, publicity this got in Ireland. But at the end of the match, when there was still a very healthy chunk of the crowd in the stadium, Madrid put on You'll Never Walk Alone, blasting out through all the, the speakers all around the stadium. And what's more, the vast majority of the many tens of thousands of Madrid fans who were still in the stadium stood up and applauded. And the reason for that, I think, was a... A, a, a unifying feeling between the two clubs about what they went through in Paris in the Champions League final. But above anything else, when they went to Anfield for that extraordinary, historic game, Amancio, their honorary president, a wonderful, wonderful footballer, a winger, had, had recently died. And Madrid thought that Liverpool had treated them exceptionally, both behind the scenes and then when they laid the floral tribute. And therefore, whoever it was just had the idea about playing You'll Never Walk Alone. But nobody could order the rumoured fans to, to stay and stand and applaud. And that that memory of uh, sort of a, a gentlemanly way between two clubs, two great clubs, who, you know, where the rivalry has been a little bit pungent over the decades, uh, there wasn't a lot of love lost after the Paris final, for example, that ended 1-0. But it... it, it <sighs> I thought Emilio Butrogeno, that wonderful ex-striker for Spain and Madrid, who's now the vice president, said, you know, true behemoths of Europe show their greatness with the gestures that each of us have given to each other over this time. And I really, really appreciated that. I know it's more, for, for this show, it's more about the sports, more about the personalities and the, and the gossip and the goals and the rows. I, I thought that was a genuinely beautiful Champions League moment. Really enjoyed it. In fairness, people have been in touch this morning asking us to ask you about it because you could hear it coming through the, the TV as well. Um, I, I think you're right, though, that uh, game recognised game, essentially. And this is, um, you know, it would have been another great final if we'd made it there. Uh, I go against that. Go. Partisan, like, partisan behaviour is is good we love a bit of rivalry in football I think like there's a bit of a there's no more partisan crowd than the Bernabeu where they're getting the no, white but, but, against their own team I feel like it's quite easy for Real to play that song when they've when, won when, okay. and, and like there's, it's, it's a, there's a bit of a Shane, 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 hashtag Shane, classy Shane, gesture Shane. about the whole thing Shane, Madrid never Real Madrid Madrid, Madrid. a la Madrid thank you 
Apologies. <laughs> well, you, 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 sorry, you sorry. Here I am apologising again, Graham. I couldn't put. <laughs> well, we, let's say we bumped into each other. Nah, look, listen. Um, you, you can, you can, you can make a little flair out of it if you want, but. Um, Madrid are, are extremely interested in their own well-being, which is a euphemism, and as such, don't think they've gone soft. I don't think it was soppy. I think that I think they're. I think the thing that's important is in in Spanish football when you co-commentate, just about every single week, um, there's a minute silence. Minute silences are, are slightly more rare. For example, in the Premier League, you would both be. Um, apart from the league in Ireland, you'd be more more interested in the Premier League than just about anywhere else, I guess. And there aren't so many minutes out. In Spain, when an old socio dies or any ex-player dies, there's a minute silence and, and the, the image is up on the big screen before every game. Now, when you're working in co-commentary in the Liga Television, it's it's a perpetual thing. And there is a, just a slightly different um, feel in Spain for remembering your past at all costs. It's not, I'm not saying that in any way the Premier League is out of touch. And it's cultural. It's probably more cultural than pure football. But if you, if you accept my premise there that that, that happens so much at every stadium, every, it's almost every weekend, um, then you have to imagine, I was going to pick a figure, uh, Rasha Tui, I don't know, but when, when, somebody of massive importance to you were to go, like Emancio to Real Madrid, and you go to a club where you could have been treated in, a, in an either indifferent or hostile way, and yet you, you watch them, involving Kenny Douglas, you watch them treat you with, with brimming respect. The idea of it repaying the gesture, I like a lot. I genuinely like it. Um, there will be no uh, gesture politics ahead of the Clasico this weekend in terms of making friends. In in fact, it seems like it's going to be the exact opposite. There's a massive scandal brewing around Barcelona yeah. and Real Madrid, it seems, are having a little bit of schadenfreude issuing statements going, well, not that we're enjoying this, but we're definitely enjoying this. Well, no, there, there hasn't been enough schaden or freude for most people until very recently because... Um, Florentino and Joan Laporta had um, a, a pretty common agenda in that they keep stoking away this Super League nonsense, I hope. And and therefore, every other club in the Premier League, apart from them, had, had issued communiques saying, this is potentially a scandal. We want the truth. It's time to investigate. You know, let's lift up all the carpets and, and show where the villains are. And if proven guilty, we need we need ultimate sanctions. And Madrid hadn't. And therefore, it was only once the criminal prosecution had been weighed up and there had, it had been deemed that there was sufficient evidence to um, proceed that, you know, Florentino Perez gave the thumbs up to Real Madrid, joining the clamour for serious explanations. The, 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 the two sides of the case are that the, the, the tax office in Spain suddenly discovered um, payments from Barcelona to an ex-referee who had a had a position in the in the refereeing um, hierarchy for the federation, um, but but not an executive role, and therefore Boston are saying, yeah, we paid these sums for advice and counsel and la la la, and every well many clubs in the league have employed ex-referees to guide them about sometimes as simple as how are the laws being uh, um, interpreted uh, this year uh, or. 
equally trying to make sure the referees, when they come to the stadium, are greeted by an ex-colleague and you, you look for a favourable reaction, all that kind of stuff. But it's it's not uncommon. And, and Madrid have, have done that themselves, hired an ex-referee. Ex being the absolutely crucial word. Barcelona were paying these sums for whatever reason to a man who was still on, still involved in in the way that the refereeing was run in Spain, and and as such, the worst that they can be uh, accused of. And in Spanish uh, law, um, and any proving that any kind of corruption or bribery has taken place um, is not as important as proving that there was any attempt whatsoever. And therefore, the, the the bar of of evidence is is lower than you might expect. And as such, if at the moment it seems very difficult for Barcelona as an institution, because it's not the current Barcelona setup, but over the last say twenty years, to escape extremely serious punishments once this is proven. But the bar for proof seems lower than. Than, than you might expect. It's it's a very damning situation. And you're right, the timing is, is quite good comedy in that Madrid have joined the clamour formally um, immediately before a classical. Whether, whether that actually affects the atmosphere of a classical where there'll be very few Real Madrid fans, where if Xavi's team wins, and this is Xavi's um, fifth classical as Barcelona manager, yet his first at the camp now, which is the the, the bizarre modern way of the world, but if, if Barcelona were to win, they'd be 12 points clear with 12 games left. And therefore, I'm not actually sure that the current situation in Madrid saying, yeah, we want explanations about this refereeing scandal too, it makes the atmosphere any more brittle than it would have been already. Um, Graham, even if you look at Barcelona's financial situation, I'm sure at the start of the year when they were setting out all their budgets, they were looking at getting to a Champions League quarterfinal, maybe semi-final, and then, of course, maybe getting to a Europa League final when that plan went out the window. That's not going to happen. There's a lot of shortfall in revenue there. And looking at people like Gavi, maybe, in that squad, whose contract issue is, is up in the air, like is Gavi a potential option for, for a Man City or, or a Liverpool at some stage this summer if, if the finances don't work out for Barca? I think you're being realistic there. Um, the player, undoubtedly, wants to stay. Um, that's been made clear by his brief statements and his agent's words and Barcelona have continuously said we're striving to get the situation the situation really briefly is that um, he was so good that he'd been promoted to a first team um, salary and his his jersey number was changed re-registered with La Liga and that took a court um, battle uh, to achieve because La Liga said your financial fair play is not sufficiently up to scratch and therefore he's going to have to stay on a junior salary. He's going to have to stay on a, not reserve team, but a junior salary. And and clearly that's a big blow to a player, any player that is, is giving their all all the time. And Gavi was extraordinary at the weekend at San Mamas against Athletic, you know, trying to dive in and tackle people with his head. He's just, he's just a little typhoon, a phenomenal footballer. And um, therefore, he's in theory. I, I don't know whether Barcelona are complying or not. But in theory, he's been put back on the junior wages, which could be in terms of you know there could be millions of a difference um, between what he's supposed to be paying now and what he's been paid ten days ago. So uh, you know, and it also means that for for as long as La Liga have their way on this, and Barcelona are appealing it in legal terms, then he is out of contract. Uh, it, it, he wasn't out of contract ten days ago. Potentially, at the end of the season, he will be now. 
Whether he would leave in disgust, um, saying, I don't know, the, I'm, I'm due to interview next week, I don't know the fella well enough to say to you, yeah, he's had enough, mm. he's up to his nose, thank you. But every every serious big club around Europe will be throwing everything that they've got at trying to persuade him to leave because he is that good, he's going to be that important and his style of football would absolutely fit anywhere. His temperament is is off the scale his will to win is off the scale and therefore he's he, he's he's got he's got some John Giles in him that's right um, he's got some classic John Giles wow. in him and therefore um can I give you lads higher praise than that no you absolutely can <laughs> I hope Unai Emery is already on the phone to him Graham great stuff uh, who's, <laughs> who's going to win is Javi going to do it is he is he going to win his first home classical oh thanks Joe. just like that man you want a one sentence answer <laughs> I I think yeah okay Vin- Vinicius and Arojo have been paired Javi has moved Arojo to right back in four of his uh, classicals so far and every time Barcelona have won and they've won on a 9-1 aggregate the only time Arojo was missing um, Real Madrid win. Real Madrid have to come up with a way to unshackle Vinicius when Araujo has put, moved from centre-back to right-back to mark him. If Araujo is successful, Barcelona win. If Vinicius and Ancelotti come up with a scheme to liberate uh, Vinicius from the Uruguayan, there is, Barcelona haven't won a home classical, um, a camp classical for four and a half years. There's the battle. Whichever of those two players is dominant, their side will win. Tune into La Liga TV for more. Graham, great stuff. Thanks a million. So, Graham Hunter there, give us some thoughts mm, on that. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, the classical always has a bit of juice to it, but this weekend, particularly with all the all the tapping off off the pitch, um, it's just fast. Everything in La Liga is fascinating as well. We'll get, get Graham on this again, but he's written a great piece this week on Valencia and Sevilla and how they're in bother in La Liga towards the bottom half as well. Valencia, particularly, are in trouble. Uh, potential trouble and Sevilla they're only a couple of bad weekends away from joining them but like the impact that might have on, on, the, on the, t- the league and they're, they're competing with the Premier League of course for sponsorship and commercial revenue as well so that would be a bit of a disaster to lose a couple of giants Sevilla uh, 2-0 up on Fenerbahce in the round of uh, 16 in the Europa League obviously Manchester United home and hose against Real Betis and uh, Arsenal Sporting that was 2-all in the first leg so it'll be very interesting to see what team Arsenal pick tonight and how many eggs they're putting in this basket the balance between going balls out for this tournament uh, or uh, trying to rest and maintain your resources for the course of the rest of the season we'll see then again maybe Gabriel Jesus comes straight back into the side to get some game time mm. and they win that and they take care of business so anyway we'll keep an eye on that and we'll obviously talk about it more over the next few days if you want to get in touch it is uh easy to do so you can leave a comment in the YouTube stream youtube.com forward slash off the ball you need to be subscribed to our YouTube channel to be allowed to comment on it and you can also tweet us at off the ball AM is the Twitter handle for the show specifically we're going to go to Cheltenham and JD next and they're off mark your card on off the ball with Boyle Sports make this Cheltenham epic 18 plus gamble responsibly see gamblingcare.ie John Duggan good morning to you how are you nice hat Great, uh, Jar and Shane. Good morning to yourselves. How was yesterday? Yeah, good fun. Met Robbie. <laughs> Spurs. I'd say you were drooling as a Spurs fan, John. I met Robbie uh, many times, so uh, it's just funny. I, got, I heard they were what, Robbie Keane's presenting the trophy of the winners' enclosure. I said, "What?" And then I said, "Okay, we got to do a doorstep here." And the thing about the doorstep, uh, which I was far too shy to do in my younger years, is that you have to. Um, get in situations where it's give me the interview but also uh, 
not do that because then you'll annoy them. But you have to get you, you have to you have to you know you have to just kind of it's like a sheepdog trot or something. You just have to give, just please just please just please just please just give me uh, yeah. And then they and then they agree and then you have to stop them moving around and then um but you, you, so you have to be polite obviously which I'm a polite person but you also have to be forthright but you because you can't fail. If Robbie Keane had walked past me, I would have failed. So we didn't fail. Um, you're a bit like Martin Brundle in the pit lane. <laughs> yes, I haven't seen the Conor Moore sketch. Apparently, it's very good. Uh, but um, yeah, and that's my, maybe one of my aspirations. So. Did anyone else lined up, John? I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's famous faces <laughs> no, it's, walking around. It's, it's like to be honest. Like, obviously, the priority is to get the horse racing people here. But um, Harry Redknapp's got a horse today, so I might see if I can bump into him. Um, it was it, like it. it <laughs> We did feel a little bit unusual. So it was Camilla Parker Bowles, Robbie Keane, Katie Walsh, and a few others handing over the trophy. <laughs> <laughs> what a melting pot. I didn't see um, the Queen Consort, I have to say. Um, but you, you do get a melting pot of everybody here at Tottenham. Yeah. That's the great thing about it. Um, to the racing yesterday. Yes. Uh, Willie Mullins and Paul Townend, they know what they're doing. They are very good. They have some good horses. <laughs> they do. And they have now, what, 92 winners for Willie and 26 for Paul at the Chatham Festival. It's just silly, really. It's almost, you kind of take it for granted because it's so excellent and it's so professional and it's so consistent. And an Urgeman won the champion chase by 10 lengths. Paul Tennant came off the horse after the race, said it was easy. It's just, it's so good, it almost becomes a little bit boring well, when you see the story later in the day, you know. Willie Mullins at, at Cheltenham is like Erling Haaland in the Champions League. It's a bit of a piss take. Like, every win, you're just like, ah, oh, again. But, but because he's Irish, we're celebrating and loving it. Well, for a long time, Willie Mullins um, would have had only had a handful of winners at Cheltenham. Like, his first Cheltenham winner was 28 years ago in tourist attraction in 1995. Uh, so it took him a long time to get up to the position where he's like having the arsenal he has now. And he's already had four winners. He 10 last year. And it's 10 forward halfway to the Irish. Let's hear from Willie Mullins. You were chatting to him yesterday. Uh, let's uh, have a listen to him. Yeah, it hasn't been our luckiest race over the years, but um, we broke through last year. Now we have two, so much happier. Talk to us about the race and how you saw it. Well, I didn't see uh, what way it was going to happen. Paul came out and told me he was going to jump off up there. Uh, he wanted to be near the pace, which he was. He, and he thought that actually there wouldn't be a lot of depth in the race, that everyone was going to just... Uh, everyone wanted to be up there and he thought well he was on the best horse he wanted to be there and just keep jumping have a clear look at all his fences which he did he jumped spectacularly loved the ground all the rain that came was just uh, fantastic for him um, so you know things couldn't have gone better you didn't feel like last time was his true running maybe I knew last time wasn't his true running you know it's not him and the rest of the week's gone really well Garda Manil, El Fabiolo and a lot to look forward to as well yes uh, we Grand Annual Chase now and then the bumper and we've a lot of nice chances later on in the week but it's a tough place to to uh, win you know we've had plenty of good chances got beaten here so that's the way it is we, we've been going we're, we're happy How are you feeling about Galapande Champs on Friday? Everything is um, everything is going well and we're very happy at how, how the preparation has gone and this rain I think is no harm No issue with the trip and the jumping and you're, you're confident yeah, he won a three-mile hurdle as a novice. I think he'll stay the trip. We're very, very happy. All right, yeah, so uh, that is as happy as Willie Mullins gets. That is him being excessively happy. 
it's a, it's a pressurized week and there's a touch of me which uh make sure you don't ask a silly question here because you might get a one-word answer um but willie is a gentleman and when he's more relaxed i went down to the yard there about six months ago or nine actually nine months ago about last july and he's he's great when he's not in a pressure situation where because it just happens so quickly it's every half an hour there's another race and they, by the time it takes about 15 to 20 minutes to do a presentation and by that time the horses are going all around the parade ring and you got to talk to the new connections it's funny he's talking about Galloping de Champ there. A lot, lot of um, Chetland punters will have nightmares thinking about Galloping de Champ last year and the was it the novices chase yes. falling at the last. But uh, will he very confident about his chances in the Gold Cup on Friday? Well, it's Patrick's day, and um, yeah, look, he's a really, really talented animal. He's a really good jumper. Uh, Willie's very confident that he'll get the three and a quarter miles because he won over three miles as a hurdle horse at Punchestown. He's won at the festival before. Uh, he won the John Durkin Chase uh, before Christmas, and he won the Irish Gold Cup there recently. So he's the most talented horse in the race. It doesn't mean he win the Gold Cup because he is in a, quite a, can be a little bit exuberant. But I think what is, uh, if you're a fan of his, you'd be pleased to see that Paul Tennant has got a more relaxed this season. I think he's got a big chance. Um, to briefly touch on Energamine, Energamine, yes, however the pronunciation is. Um, uh, you're, it's interesting you brought up the word pressure in the aftermath of that because here is a horse where the expectation is that if everything goes well but the, the, I thought it was really interesting he was like yeah Paul Tanner told me what we were going to do you know he just their relationship is so symbiotic so deeply embedded the trust is so at such a high level because you know you're dealing with a world class practitioner that when Paul Tanner says this is the plan this is the plan yeah, that's trust. You trust in your in your employee and your jockey. Uh, there's a partnership or element around it. Now, William Mullins isn't shy of. I remember reading about him telling Ruby Walsh or tell Ruby Walsh that that wasn't your finest hour, was it? Uh, but he has the trust in the jockey to make the mistake. So he hammered Paul Tennant publicly for riding against Fasal Vega there at Leopardstown. Paul went off way too quick, but he gets it right 99 percent of the time. So there's an honesty there, but there's also a trust in the person to get the job done. And I think. There's got to be an acceptance in this crazy game where the horse is going 30 miles an hour. There's a lot of traffic. There's a lot of obstacles to be jumped. You're dealing with an animal that has their own mind. Um, that if you can get it right eight, nine times out of ten, then that's okay. If you're only getting it right five times out of ten, maybe that becomes an issue. I have a couple of board games at home, John, that says fun for ages 18 to 85. And, and Cheltenham turns out <laughs> is, the, is the exact same. Yeah, John Gleeson. Uh, yesterday, leaving cert student, I was listening to your chat with him as well. Fascinating, like his first ever ride on a dream to share, and he wins. And then John Kylie, the, the owner, eighty, eighty, what, eighty five, from Dungarvan. It's, it's quite a story. Yeah, training and training, um, sorry, yeah. I know Shane, you're probably on the moon when you were eighteen because you're a very progressive person in terms of your, you know, getting all these brilliant interviews with all these Apollo <laughs> astronauts and everything. You know, you, you do very progressive time in your life when you were a, a teenager. For myself, I was an utter square who did nothing. Uh, until I got into the first day of college, and then uh, my my life started. Um, I don't know about Jared. I don't speak for Jared there, but <laughs> even um, Trinity, yeah, he was had prepping for <laughs> trainers. I wouldn't paddle Jared. because it's my birthday. <laughs> 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 but I know, but I know you're, you're a spaceman, Shane. Yeah. And uh, look, look, look! What a story this is. I met Brian Gleeson. We all know Brian Gleeson from the TV. He's really popular, really a bullion kind of character doing the betting on uh, RTE TV and uh, ITV. So he's uh, John's dad. They bred the horse at home. Um, they won at Leopardstown. And then J.B. McManus bought the horse, a dream to share. What an apt name. I met Brian yesterday morning. And I said, went up to said, look, look, best look, Brian. And he goes, ah, sure, look. He was, um, I don't think he wanted to believe that it actually could happen. He was trying to play down the chances of the ground. It was too soft and this. And I just said, look, we just agree that, look, hope that the young kid enjoys it. And 
everything everybody comes back with a great experience for him to actually win it. And win it with such a brilliant ride that he tracked Patrick Mullins in the slipstream and that he took the inside track and then he won the bumper. It is a fairy tale story. Like doing your leave in the summer, um, first ride at Cheltenham, you can't make it up really. You can't make it up. <laughs> no, it's it's like I can only imagine what the rest of how how do you go back to the school on Monday? Like English paper one or yeah. my accountancy exam. I'm like, oh, the uh, matching principle in accounting means that. I'm like, well, no, I just want to, I just want to tell them. Uh, pretty impressive. He's the Shane O'Donnell of horse racing. There you go. Um, so today, what are we looking at? We're looking at uh, seven races. Uh, another very strong Irish hand. 10-4 is the tally at the moment. I think it's an embarrassment, to be honest, at this stage for the home contingent. They need to look at something. They need to look, because this is like a trend now that's seven, eight years in the making. They need to look at something in terms of investment in the sport, investment in owners, investment in prize money, investment in more competitive races here. Um, the Stairs Hurdle is the feature of half three. So we have Florian Porter, you know, the lads in the Hurling Pods, James Scahill, and uh, that big syndicate out west. They've won the race two years in, the, in a row. A carpet shop and a pub. A great story, Gavin Cromwell. The horse hasn't been in the best form this season, Florian Porter, but he goes there with a, with a chance, obviously, of winning a, a hat-trick. Um, classical Dream, trained by Willie Mullins, ridden by Paul Tennant. This horse has got a squeak, was second by Tia Poo in the Hatton's Grace Hurdle, and they finished ahead of Honeysuckle. Classical Dream needs to be fresh as a quirky type, but hasn't run since then, so he's got a chance. Tia Poo, as I said, is the favourite. Gordon Elliott will uh, train this one. Davy Russell will ride out of retirement, as we know. The horse will love the ground. Soft ground here. It's been raining uh, for the back end of yesterday, and probably going to rain again today. Three-mile trip, soft ground. There's a horse called Gold Tweet from France that I like. Uh, Joseph Bryan's got a home by the Lee. So it's a very competitive race, the Stairs Hurdle. Um, the other one that we're looking at is the Ryanair Chase at 250, the race before that. Shishkin beat an Urgeman last season, uh, has been in and out of form, but did win on his last start at Ascot. Goes up and trip now to two and a half miles at Cheltenham. And Shishkin uh, has the likes of Blue Lord and Janadil to face. So they're the couple of the big races. A lot of handicap races, a lot of big fields. And uh, always a difficult day, I find, Thursday to work out the, uh, the puzzle. Okay. And on that note, what are your charity bets for today? Okay, let's go through them. Uh, thank you to Ball Sports for putting up the, the cash. We're up 7% after two days. A winner, a second and a third yesterday, but a lot of duds as well. But we're just ahead. And hopefully by tomorrow evening, we will be ahead as well. Um, so what I'm going to do is go for Blue Lord each way in the 250. He's my nap of the day, 25 each way at 11 to 2. I think Blue Lord is rock solid. I think Shishkin has got sometimes questions to answer. And I think Blue Lord's a good jumper. I think the step up and trip will help him. He won really well at Leperstown at Christmas. I think he's a very solid prospect of getting into the frame, Blue Lord. Kind of a conservative nap bet, but 25 each way, Blue Lord, 11 to 2. Maxim is in the 210 for Gordon Elias. This horse bolted in, I was going to say something more rude, at Christmas um, at Leopardstown and, and like soft ground, I think will help him, 15 each way on him at 5-1 to one in the Pertown's handicap hurdle over three miles. Gold squeeze the French Raider, I'm going to give it to him a chance at 10-1 to one in the Stairs hurdle, 15 each way, one over the course and distance last time on the conditions and I think if he improves, he can maybe trouble the Irish horses. I think he could be the fly in the ointment gold tweet. Midnight River, Dan Skelton, Harry Skelton had a winner yesterday. They fancy this horse. He's 15 to 2, Midnight River in the late festival place, two and a half mile chase. That's a 410. Jessica Harrington sends over to Tara, related to a former champion hurdle winner, Jeski, in a Maris Navas hurdle. She's 22 to 1, uh, 15 each way on her. Uh, that's in the 450. And 5, 530, obviously, you describe yourself, uh, Jaron and Shane, as Mr. Incredible. Um, 11 to 2, 15 each way. When I did that William Mullen stable tour back in July, 
Patrick Mullins told me he'd never won the Kim Muir Amateur Chase at the festival. He's won some of the other amateur races, like the Bumper, he's won the Amateur Novices Chase, but he's never won the Kim Muir Chase. So it's a real big family ambition for the Mullins family to win this race. They've got a live contender in Mr. Incredible, who was second at Warwick last time out. He'll get the trip. And William Mullins has been talking about this horse in Grand National terms. So he's 11-2 to two each way. I think he'll have a, a definitely good each way chance. So Mr. Incredible, Jatara, Midnight River, Gold Tweet, Maxim and the each way nap Blue Lord and put these up on ball.com later John good stuff happy punting today and thanks a million for joining us cheers Jerry Shane enjoy Patrick's day that was John Duggan live from Cheltenham and they're off mark your card on off the ball with Boyle Sports make this Cheltenham epic 18 plus gamble responsibly see gamblingcare.ie up next we're going to join uh, be joined by Vinnie Perth in the studio here is John Duggan asking Robbie Keane yesterday at Cheltenham about Evan Ferguson Evan as well. You know, excited to see Evan. He's, he's, he's done brilliant so far. Uh, excited to see him. I'm sure he'll he'll play a you know big part in the next in the next couple of years because he's certainly a prospect. What you like about him? He's, he, I think he's got a lot of ability. You know, I, I was speaking to one of your colleagues here. The only thing I, I don't like doing is putting pressure on, 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 on young young strikers. I've been there myself and. Uh, I lucky that I, over, I overcame it and, and you know I was lucky enough to score a lot of goals. But uh, we've seen over the years, you know, putting pressure on, on, on young young strikers and comparing them to myself or whoever, John Aldridge, Noel Quinn. I don't I don't like it because they're their own their own people. It's a different era, and uh, Evan's got his own path and he's a different striker to me. He's a lot obviously clearly a lot taller than me, uh, but he has he has something something really special about him and. Uh, when you're playing at the highest level in the Premier League and playing for a team like Brighton, that you know can uh, is competing against really top teams, and he's he's at the forefront of it. And also, he's you know he was injured for a while and he came back and, he, and he's playing. So it's all I can do is wish him as, a, as an Irish fan and wish him the best of luck, and hopefully he can bang some goals in for us. Yeah, it's Robbie Keane yesterday speaking to John Duggan at Cheltenham. Vinnie Perth is with us. Vinnie, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you doing? It's um, I look. Robbie's right. We get carried away. We're we're just fans. But Robbie knows what it's like to have a little bit of pressure on you as a 17, 18, 19-year-old coming through. Yeah, the best thing I suppose I can say is... Because um, uh, this one's like... Me, me and Evan's father are probably best mates, so I've seen him grow up and uh, as a kid in around the house and holidays together, all that stuff. So I'm reluctant. I certainly won't. I know you love uh, so playing people up a little bit. We are so excited. So I'll be even less than uh, Robbie. But the only thing I can say is from knowing the kid so well is that, um, and, and by the way, um, I had no impact in any way, shape or form in his career. Barely watched him play football, ironically, even though. I know him quite well. Is that you missed out there, Vinny? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah. He 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 remind me of that. Don't worry. But it's that he is. Um, he just it's duck to water this stuff, honestly. And um, I've been lucky enough to be around people who've done quite well. I know Robbie quite well. I know Richard done really well, and. He's just very similar to them guys in terms of he's not going to get above him station in any way, shape or form uh, anytime soon. So the pressure the pressure is one thing um, and rightly so he's been talked about as all these great things but it doesn't bother him in the slightest genuinely. Uh, nice of Roberto De Zerbi to rest him last night and only bring him off the bench for the last 25 minutes of the game you know, with the, the big game against France coming up from... <laughs> Yeah, it was. I expected him to be on the bench. Nothing more than he's been in. He's out. Welbeck came on and, and uh, done quite well. So listen, if he if he's dovetailing with Danny Welbeck, um, that's okay with me. It looks like it looks like on paper he's ahead of Welbeck. 
Um, but we'll see. Uh, I, I don't think at this stage it's any big deal that he comes out of a game here and there. How, no. how does the Ida injury change the potential face of that Irish lineup on for the France game? Yeah. So, so my gut feeling was we we may have went with Ida um, just because of the experience, and I know the, the guys in the camp really. Uh, really like what what Ida brings to the team in terms of that focal point, um, but if we don't know what the injury is yet, um, haven't heard too much about it, so that may change, Shane. And, and look, um, as Robbie said, when you're playing week in week out as he is now, it's no shock that he's in a team. So therefore, at the level he's playing at, he's probably jumped ahead of a lot of the people like Troy Parrott and other guys and. Um, Stephen's always been, for me, a really, really brave coach. I think this squad um, that we've put together over the last couple of years is a lot of heavy lifting. But I actually don't, that's why I thought either a fit would play. I think he's sort of found where he is in it. And I don't think we'll see, like Joe Hodge didn't get picked for argument's sake. I don't think we see loads of changes at the moment. I think he's settled on, mm. on where he's at. So I don't, I, um, don't see a big change. All right, that's what's coming out uh, this afternoon. We'll obviously have a reaction to it on the show tonight with Nathan from 7 o'clock. Let's talk about the situation in the League of Ireland. It's a really interesting table at the moment. Um, mm. <clears throat> Rovers' difficulties, is, I, I would argue, really great for the league, right? Yeah, yeah. If you're a Rovers fan, it's not great for you. But it's actually brilliant that they're not just winning the first five games of the season, 15 points on the table, swashbuckling their way through, and we're all like, well, oh, this is going to be a procession. Because it, it, sucks, it sucks the casual yeah. viewers in going... All right, so there's going to be a title race this season. Yeah, I think um, while I fully expect them to win the league, that hasn't changed. I just think, yes, it's great for the league. It's another story. Um, it's only five games in. So I was in Tolka Park the other night. They played Shelbourne. I probably agree with a lot what Stephen Bradley said after the game. I thought they were quite good. They were um, probably they were definitely the better team, but didn't create a whole lot of chances. So that would be my only concern as a coach. Not... Um, uh, Connor Cairns and goal for Shelburne wasn't overly worked so that would be a big concern they, there just seems to be a lack of um, real goal threats coming from them and I know they scored four against Cork but that was a strange game but beyond that just didn't see that sort of firepower and blown teams away at the moment uh, but they're still playing quite well I've seen them live I think three times and they've been really it's not like this is a uh, where they're trying to find form, where they're not playing well, where things are going wrong, and there's infighting that you can see. It just seems they're short of one like, a little spark to go on the run. It's funny, I wanted to ask you, Vinny, but there was a couple of comments from Stephen Bradley after the game. People were asking him about the fact that some of the new signings, he didn't put them in at all at the start against Shelburne at Tulka Park, and he said it was down to a bit of experience, and they've been here and done that. It was a Dublin derby, so I was thinking of the experience and understanding what the game was about, what it needed. That was my thinking. But surely if you're, if you're going to sign players you still have to throw them in. You can't get experience in a Dublin derby without putting them in there. Yeah, but there's a bit of a difference between, like, Tolka Park uh, pitch at the moment is heavy. Um, it's it's in good enough condition, as it's, I've seen it a lot worse. And there's just, experience is, is the key. You look at a team at the top of the league, and well, albeit there's two centre-halves playing them balls from, from Poland, it's predominantly a League of Ireland team who have started well, because this time of the year... Training sessions are difficult, pitches are difficult, mm. the the grounds are difficult, and that makes complete sense to me to, in terms of what he done in terms of his team selection. Like Richie Tell came in, obviously would have given them really running power midfield, and so so I get what he's saying. It makes it makes sense, but I hear your point. But the difference if that had been a Dublin derby in Tala 
I think you may have seen some of those new signs in the team, mm-hmm. but um, no experience. And as I said, away Dublin derby, but it wasn't one of those. Dub- it was quite a boring match in many ways. It wasn't one of those Dublin derbies where it's blood and guts and thunder. It was like it was a lot of possession um, from from Rovers and not a lot from Shells. They set in a couple of counter attacks and um, could have nicked it at one or two stages, but. It was very comfortable for Rovers, just didn't get the goal. Um, we expect Rovers to get better. We expect Jack Byrne to grow into the season and Richie Tile to grow into the season and those creative players that they have to come more to the fore. Is this maybe a conditioning thing where they're like they're periodising to get ready and they're they're happy enough with where they are? Well, that's what you'd say as a coach after a bad start. But no, I think they're... Look, uh, you mean you'd make stuff up, Vinny? Yeah, like that's, <laughs> that's nonsense. Like they're fit enough, they're ready... Um, there is obviously at the start of the season you're trying to find your feet and it's very hard to explain to you pre-season in, um, in December, January now we've had it long enough can be really difficult in terms of this country and weather and you're predominantly on AstroTurf pitches and then you go and play uh, on a really difficult pitch in different venues or whatever so look no I, I, I think like I go back to Graham Bork's first half performance against Derry City was sensational like um, um, so they've players that are near there um, Farouge looks like he's going to kick on this year He he's someone that really is exciting in the league I think Jack Bourne has, has just been average by Jack Bourne standards so when, when a couple of these things come together jo- Johnny Kenny's finding his feet again back in the league they've played Gaffney Kenny who, who's going to start so I, I think they're near there I think they're, they're it's not um, doom and gloom but at the same time I said a couple of weeks ago, the Wales can come off very quickly. It's a huge game for them this week, a huge game because if they didn't win, then that, that's like that's six games is is, is sort of a it's, it's a pattern. A, it, yeah, it, it's definitely you can you can sort of find trends after six games, not one or two. So they've got uh, Pats at home. Um, you, you had very high praise for the job that um, Duffer did last season, and you've had another opportunity there to see them um, most recently. Uh, are they lining up three four three? It says in my. Um, I wasn't at the game. Um, um, no, it, it's yeah. No, sorry. It's to be fair. Without the ball, it was t- everyone behind the ball, and right. it was a really low block, and it was and sort of letting Rovers have it. And tactically, very good. There's no spaces with them. Gavin Malloy, young young player, midfielder, playing playing um, right side centre half for back three. Right. Done really really well. He was he was outstanding. So. It, but it it is definitely backs to the wall. There's no very little creativity to it. Um, the challenge now for for Duffer and Joey O'Brien, and they've spoken about it, is to get these players now to be better up the pitch. So, Shelburne aren't conceding a lot of goals, but they're they're not scoring goals, and they're not. And in the world of entertainment, you've got to create something. So while the fans will accept the Rovers' performance because it's Shamrock Rovers and you get a point. I think they'll want to see a little bit more from them at home in particular in terms of as an attacking side. How long does that take? Um, What's realistic in terms of expectations for our supporters? Well, well, to come away from Duffer for a second, I said it before here, if I, was, if I took over a club tomorrow and you're conceding goals, well, it's easy as a coach. You often hear coaches, and any whether it's in England, anywhere, saying, oh, we're conceding goals and we've got to fix that because that's the easiest training session to do. Defensive session, yeah, we don't break us down. Put the the hardest session in football to do is creativity. That's why Pep is the best when he when he was at Bayern and he had Lamb playing as a centre midfielder or Cancelo or the way Klopp does his stuff. That's how the, the elite managers take teams to a next level. They, their coaching sessions are about 
obviously they, they get the basics right but it's about coming up with different ways of winning and that's the hard part for any team how long does it take it, it, it depends on your players and I would say to you this Shelbourne team I, I really like them I like the, what they're doing I just use Gavin Malloy as one example I think young young kid playing men's football uh, doing really really well but they're probably short of one or two players that go, take them to the next level and Sean Boyd's a big loss for them but they're probably short of two, one or two of the best players in the league um, to help them go to the next stage OK uh, if, if we think that there's a pattern emerging or might be after six games from uh, Rovers there's definitely a pattern emerging from Bohemians where they're sticking in games they're hard to beat they're scoring goals it's a very heady combination Yeah and I'll use the term they're a League of Ireland team Okay, um, so what I mean by that is Keith Buckley came back, was away for a year. Keith Buckley's come back into the midfield and being excellent. Keith Buckley was out the other day um, with, with, a, with a niggle, so they, they bring in Adam McDonald, who, who has huge running power, played for Sligo last year. He went into the 10, probably not his best position, but again, it was away in a Dublin derby, away to Pats, and they were very, very controlled in what they'd done won comfortably in the end there wasn't a lot in the game to be fair to Pats but it was about the performance was was very much um, a, a League of Ireland performance and we spoke here a couple of weeks ago about uh, Johnny Afalabi needing mm. a goal and, and he got a he got a great goal early in that game and that filled him with confidence and um, they've hit the ground running because they had uh, Declan appointed early last year they signed players last year they didn't bring a host of long players in what other clubs done and they've hit the ground running I think they're probably short to sustain that over the season, but sometimes, uh, watch this, Shane. Mm. Sometimes momentum, momentum carries you all the way. He's loving to, that. He's to loving something. that. But um, <laughs> no, look, I, I think Bowles have done the business right, and and they're a League of Ireland team for now. And this, going back to the weather and all of that stuff, they, they're suited where they're at. But there's a bit of quality to them as well too. The the low derby tonight. Um, what well, fixture you've experienced plenty plenty of times yourself, Finny? But how, how does it compare to the? To the Dublin derbies, like is it the same, same kind of hatred back and forth there? Stephen O'Donnell has a, as a top. They've actually both started reasonably well this season. Yeah, no, I, I, um, Kevin Doherty's done a really good job because Trotter, Trotter people probably thought would be it'd be them and UCD battling out at the bottom, and they've got a good start to themselves. Um, yeah, no, that that'll be there. There's a lot of hatred there, and it, it can be. Um, I know when I experienced the draw, they weren't that good at the time, so we probably had a handy against them. We've won some of the games comfortably, but there was also times where you go up to United Park and he'd pull it up to you, and mm. uh, a little bit of nastiness would creep in. So um, it has the same Dublin Derby feel to it when you go to a Dublin Derby. Um, yeah, the, the fans does, does not a, they don't like each other in any way, shape, or form, and to be um, that'll be a, a proper intensity about that game tonight. I think. Being a Thursday night is actually interesting because I, I do often say trying different things, and but the game is, the game will be more or less a sellout anyway. And but it'd be a really good atmosphere in it, and uh, a lot of um, choice words coming from the stands aimed at each other. So it'll be really good, really interesting game. Uh, are dairy about where we would expect them to be? Like obviously, there's a big transitional period happening where everything is kind of uh, moving on to a hopefully a long term plan and an even keel and when that happens sometimes we can have expectations that are slightly out of whack um, they're unbeaten after five games they're second in the table they're going to be pretty happy with how life has gone they've, they've come yeah. to Rovers and they've beaten them I, I, I suppose it's funny no one, no one worry 
Um, Higgins, he'd be a bit disappointed he hadn't picked up more points. They were very dominant against Dundalk on Friday. Um, 60, 65% the ball. Dundalk set in, went up and looked for a point and got it. So uh, probably their biggest fear for me has been, or the biggest area of improvement is around the back forward. You've got real talent in the forward area. He's got some exceptional players. We've seen that a couple of weeks ago, the way they cut open Shamrock Rovers. But um, Cameron Dummigan is missing at the moment. Um, he's a right back probably the best player in the league last year outside of Gaffney McJanet the captain is injured and Mark Conley got what looked like you know a proper hamstring where he's sprinting and it's one of them we pulled up they don't have the strength and depth around the back four to carry that so that's a big challenge for them I felt the area improvement was around their back four and then to lose to be out without three of them is going to really test them so it's a big test for, for Derry over the next couple of weeks in terms of how many of them players they can get back obviously the international window will help them but that's going to be a challenge for them for me And um, but have a great start to the season playing really well really comfortable McElhenney looks like he's, he's where he is they've managed him quite well I always say he's probably the best player in the league alongside Jack Bourne for talent reasons and they've Michael Duffy to come back into the team so um, they're, they're, they're really in a good place and they can take a little bit of confidence from Rovers struggling because it's, it's, there's not a lot of pressure on them they're not chasing Rovers winning 5 out of 5 and they're already a couple of points behind they're in a good position yeah, It's a good opportunity for them to uh, try and build up a bit of a lead and just kind of get that cushion you know like they all the talk has been that they are in a, in a tight race so yeah. there is pressure at, at yeah. some level and you would hope their expectation is that they're going to be able to sustain that over the course of the season well th- that's why I want this Rovers team to be tested I think they're a great team but to be to be a great team I think you need to be tested so what what, what I mean by that is t- take this Friday they play Pats and Derry are winning 2-0 right they haven't really had this experience where if it's nil all and taller between them and Pats after 55-60 minutes you go and take a risk yeah and you go and it matters because it hasn't mattered yeah it hasn't mattered it hasn't mattered as in you've always had a bit of a cushion you would say uh, once the season got going and that's the different mentality and people don't understand that And, and someone asked me during the week what does it take to win a league and not that I'm an expert in any way shape or form but being involved in a couple of league winning teams I said it's very difficult to answer that other than to say probably a bit of calmness if you can have a bit of calmness and that's that's probably the best word I can use for if Derry continue to win then as it currently stands I think Rovers would have to be, um, Derry would have to lose three games and Rovers would have to win three more now now it's very early for that but the longer that stays there then you go chasing a game you take a chance you get a corner in the 85th minute and you send an extra player in and all of a sudden you're done the counter attack and that's what I want to see this Rovers team tested do I think they'll pass the test yeah I think they're a great team but let's let's yeah. test them Well, and the other side to that is that the opposition suddenly aren't feeling like they're beaten in every game going out against Rovers that there's no kind of last 10 minutes where our oh, Rovers are going to do us here because they're Rovers and so that'll be grand we can accept that Yeah you always get that where um, a point against Shamrock Rovers is, is a good result and um, most teams will think that you probably think that about Derry as well I think the difference in our league now at the moment is no matter who you are you think you can pick up points against everyone else as in I think you think three points are on the table against everybody else and that's where there's, there's a huge amount of teams now are very similar standard and that's where you're seeing results up and down Who's the pick of that tier of teams just below Derry and, and Shamrock Rovers and I suppose you've got Bowes Dundalk Sligo Rovers maybe you consider themselves 
amongst that as well. But who's the pick of them? Yeah, no, the, the pick of them at the moment was was Bowles. I thought Pat, I thought Pats would be. They've had a they've had a difficult start to the season, and um, we'll see how that one plays out. But uh, I, I I like to look at what Dundalk have done. A lot of the loan signings look like they're a, a really high standard. But the problem is they only signed three or four of them over the last two weeks. Mm. If they can get a settled team very quickly, Daniel Kelly looks like he's hurt his hamstring again. That's a huge blow to them. Pahoban, um Pahoban is like he, because it's Dundalk and because it's outside of Dublin, genuinely don't get the feeling how big of a player that person is. He's outstanding for them. He's probably fitter now than he has been in a couple of years because he's had a run of games. Over a hundred times he scored for Dundalk. I think he's he's chasing down his six or seven goals from the all time goal scorer. And um you know I often hear you talk about uh GEA players getting you you know the records, reckon, re- yeah. records and yeah. the standards or if they walk mm. into a ground the amount of kids would run around. You wanna see you wanna see like we we've done a soccer uh uh, camp for underage kids in Dundalk uh, a couple of years ago and the players came down I brought them down to meet the kids sign different things but when Hoban walked in it was your Clifford moment right. and uh, I'll find it I'll send it to you so I'll find it on um, one of the socials or whatever YouTube but I think he can if he if they get him fit and get mm-hmm. players around him or stay fit they they could be the they could be the pick of the bunch right. and um, that that go and push someone on. Well, all of a sudden, while Rovers are having their little moments, everybody else must be thinking, "Let's go on, let's just see what happens." They got and points, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you've got to remember, so there's ten team league, four teams get into Europe, three and one in the cup. But generally, the top three teams will win a cup, so a forty percent chance. And then the rewards for Europe are absolutely huge. Yeah. They're huge. Anyone, that, um, it's it's probably. You would say it's you're nearly guaranteed somewhere around half a million. Okay, that's half a million for literally nothing for one better word for one game and win a game or two. You're heading for a million pound. That's huge investment for a League One club. Yeah. So that's the that's the dream. If 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 you were doing an interview, I haven't done many of them, but if you were doing an interview, you talk about Europe. That's my advice to coaches coming through and how you get a team to Europe because that's what owners want for obvious reasons. All right. Uh, any last one? Any, any so you don't expect any surprises in the squad name today, really? No, um, I I would imagine just on the squad have a little look at maybe Ireland having a McGrath Knight Malumbi Cullen combination as a sort of a box of midfield. That would be the one for me, particularly with Ida missing. Have a look at that. And uh, before we move on, just to give a special mention, the Irish under 17s Oh yeah, it's yeah. huge. Yeah. It's huge. And what's really important about it is sometimes I come in here and, and give out about funding and different things. It's so much home based. And it's actually not just home-based, as in Pats, Rovers and Bowles have a big element of this. But there's players from Wexford, Cork, Derry as well. And um, what we're doing on their age level, they ca- obviously Colin O'Brien has done a brilliant job as head coach. But what the academies in League of Ireland are doing, despite this big change and all the trouble... They're helping this international team. Some people deserve huge credit. Rovers, Pats, Bowles, as I said, but also there's players coming from outside of it as well. And um, that was, that's really, really important what we're doing and to say we're actually able to do this despite of everything else. And I'll just, just throw this one at you to maybe for you to investigate or, or to, to take on. Look at the Irish government giving £500,000 to GEA in New York. Mm. <sighs> I'm not going to say that other than that's hard. it's not heartbreaking but 
don't forget us lads we're still here <laughs> look feel free to have that conversation because like, it is it is like I've, we, I've been to the um, uh, the annual dinner dance in uh, in Gaelic Park mm. and they have access to a load of money because there's a lot of rich Irish businessmen yeah. who've made and who are sending loads of money back and are sponsoring like teams here but are sponsoring the team out there New York floats on a pile of Irish money I'm not being critical of it fair play to them that's uh, that's uh, but uh, it, is, it is a bit strange that Michael Martin goes over and goes here's 500 grand from the Irish Exchequer for a, for an organisation that can actually you know it serves a, it serves a function but it, it's self-sustaining and it, it can generate its own cash yeah and uh, I think it's important that I say because so, I bring this stuff up probably regularly it's important to say I know there's a huge amount of work going on in the FEI in the background and I hope in time there'll be some sort of announcement in terms of some and uh, so I'm not saying anyone is sitting on their hands I'm not saying nothing's going on and it, it takes time but when you look at our under 17s competing internationally um, and having the Brexit to deal with where these players would have been developed or 16, 17 year olds on most of, when Brian Kerr done it with, with the great Noel O'Reilly it, a lot of them lads were like Robbie was in Wolves or Celtic Richard was or, in Everton yeah. and all this stuff this is this has been done from here and it's been done through hard work and despite of everything else so I'm just saying maybe some people need to say it's brilliant for New York I'm not begrudging them a penny that money but hey we're doing alright ourselves and with a little bit more help we might even do a bit better. All right. That's fair. as politically as correct as it can be. Yeah, no, it's a fair point fair to raise at the end there. Uh, drop the bomb, mic drop, walk off uh, into the sunset. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll see what happens, but we'll definitely follow that story up. It's eight minutes past nine. Uh, that is our weekly League of Ireland slot there. Vinny Perth, thanks very much. Uh, here's what's on the OTB podcast network for you today. Mark your card. That's John Duggan's tips, the football pod with uh, Tommy and Wednesday Night Rugby with Jerry Thorney and Andy Dunn. Follow us across our social channels. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube as well. After this short break, Filippo Clares, you had to be there. It's so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. Right, I am delighted to welcome our guest for this week's You Had To Be There. It is none other than the legendary French sports journalist Philippe Auclair. Philippe, good morning to you. How are you? Um, not too bad. Good morning to you. Thank you for having me. We, When we asked you, we expected five football, but actually it is heavily <laughs> skewed in favour of cricket. <laughs> I'm afraid so. Uh, cricket is my favourite game. Um, I, I, I hesitated because, to be honest, the thing is that when you ask me, I had to be there. First of all, I had to choose the occasions on which I was at the ground, where it happened. And the second thing, I had to think of individual performances, and which is not my way of looking at things normally. I, I can think of team performances, for example. Um, I would certainly have put, you know, uh, Arsenal's 2-1 win over Barcelona as one of my five moments if it had been for just a sporting occasion. But if I have to take one player out or one singular individual performance out, I think, ah, no, that doesn't quite work. So, Obviously, cricket being a game which is both team sport and individual sport lends itself more, I think, to this kind of thing. Okay, that's it. And I think that, yeah, that's very I, I think yes, that I think it is quite logical. But you know, there, there's quite quite a bit of football, though. There is, there's loads of football. I, I'm interested in again that um, it's club football as opposed to international football that you've gone for. Yeah, for the simple reason that uh, I've attended thousands of club games. And perhaps only hundreds of international games. So otherwise, I would have said, okay, Michel Platini. Um, and I could have 
taken five performances by Michel Platini, for example. But I wasn't there when he scored the, the winning goal in the final of the 1984 um, European Championship. I wasn't there. So, uh, again, it's the thing of uh, what matters is the, the, the imprint it leaves on you, um, almost physically, as a matter of fact, because you're part of this giant organism, which is a sport audience, and, and you participate in a way which is completely different from the way that, say, uh, I could think, you know, for example, Yannick Noah winning the um, French Open, uh, which was a huge moment uh, for, for all of us. And for me, I was a very keen tennis player at the time. But again, I was not at Roland Garros. Well, whereas I was, I can promise you, I was at every single of these five occurrences. Okay, well, um, let's start with a match between Pakistan and England at the Oval. This is the fifth test mm-hmm. in yeah. 1987. Uh, Abdul Qadir is not going to be a name that many of our viewers this morning here in Ireland are, are watching, but I'm sure that um, our English viewers are like, oh yeah, we remember this. So can you can you put a bit of context on this performance for us? Well, uh, first of all, I, I, I passed the cricket test. I'm an England supporter. And strangely enough, the two cricket performances I've chosen have both been against England. <laughs> um, so which should tell you something about how amazing they were. Um, Abdul Qadir, to those who, who don't know him, was, um, uh, because he's unfortunately uh, left us, uh, probably one of the all-time great spin bowlers um, uh, in cricket. And he was at the time a kind of, of dinosaur. He was the last exponent of a dying art or what people thought was a dying art which was leg spin bowling and i'd fallen in love with cricket uh, as soon as i i settled in in london and started to go to games uh, watching middlesex and this amazingly enough was the very first test i went to wow. at the oval yeah and uh, i wouldn't say i chose wisely because this was not the time of baseball where you know um the England team goes at five runs and over. It was quite a stodgy affair. Javed me and that scored at uh, 260, I believe, in an innings that seemed to last forever. Uh, Mudassar Nazar was there, which is a, a name that will send chills down the spine of everybody who wants their cricket to be played at a good, uh, a good pace. But anyway, it was a great, it was a grand occasion. And, uh, you have to say that some of the players uh, in both teams, I mean, rank amongst, you know, the greatest of the generation. So, you know, for example, Pakistan, the captain was Imran Khan. Uh, Javed Miantad was, uh, was batting. Uh, the great Wazim Akram, probably the greatest left arm um, swing and fast bowler of all time, was also there. And, you know, England still had players like Mike Gatting was, the, uh, was at the time the captain. He had won the Ashes in the, in the winter. David Gower, the great David Gower, was batting. It was two very, very strong teams. And it was the flattest of pitches. It's like nothing was happening. And then suddenly out of nowhere comes this weird animal. Um, as I said, a dinosaur. Uh, I've compared him sometimes to a silicant. It's like you think it's a species which has disappeared and you find in the depth of the ocean a living fossil. And he's not only uh, the exponent of a dying art, but he's one of the greatest exponents of this dying art. And I, what I've, when I fell in love with cricket, I've, I fell in love with the intricacy of it, with the complexity of it, but also with the fact that it was possible to be a fabulous bowler and to send the ball down actually more slowly than I, as a starter, as a beginner, could do it in the nets. I think, how is that possible? You should be smashed to all part of the parks. And obviously, it's a bit more complicated than that. And, and Kadir was also somebody who had a quasi-mystical approach to his cricket. So he was defending, he was a very proud Pakistani, and he defended his national team 
sometimes, I mean, he was incredibly competitive and incredibly aggressive on the field. But there was also another element to him, was that for him, the art of leg spin, which is really an art, an art form, one of the, I mean, greatest art forms in sport, was also about getting in touch with some kind of greater truth and to do that by constant practice and thinking and and, and evaluation of his own art. And he had developed an arsenal of deliveries that I think very few other leg spinners or slow bowlers have ever developed in the game, including Shane Warne. You know, and he could, he, he knew, and I, I mean, I know maybe we're talking to people who are not necessarily that much into cricket, but for example, one of the weapons of a leg spinner is the googly, right? Which is the wrong one, uh, which goes the other way that you're expecting to do. Well, at Ducardi, I didn't have one. He had three. He had one that he made sure that the batsman could identify so that the batsman would think afterwards, yeah, okay, that's a googly coming, except he had the second one, which was a bit more disguised, and he had the third one, which you couldn't read at all. And he did that of three paces, walking paces, on an absolute flat pitch on which the England bowlers, the slow bowlers, that is, who were at the time Phil Edmonds, the left armour, and John Embury, who never spun a ball in his life, um, they had taken zero wickets for something like plenty in the first innings. And and then we thought, okay, this is going to a draw. This is going to be so boring. And then this man appears and, and give this unbelievable, unbelievable exhibition of the most difficult art form uh, of spin bowling, which is leg spin bowling. And I, I was, I was mesmerized. I was like the, the batsman, you know, on the pitch who couldn't understand what was going on. I couldn't understand, but I knew one thing. It was, it was beautiful to watch. And we were in touch with, uh, one of the great artists of world sport, and I think of any country of any era. Um, I think you've exactly explained what this whole slot is supposed to be about, where you're, you're witnessing something unfold and, and you believe that it's somebody uh, in the hunt for or discovering a greater truth. Uh, seven wickets for 96 runs. Did Pakistan win the test? I presume they did with those scores. No. No, 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 no right. they didn't because they had, they had taken their time to, um, to, to score their runs and plenty of them over 700 in the first innings. And uh, despite the fact, I mean, uh, Abdul Qadir did take, uh, I think, three wickets in the second innings, but uh, England just uh, basically dug in and they, they drew uh, with quite comfortably actually scoring 315 for four wickets and with uh, my Gatting scoring a, a, a typical Gatting innings, which was both uh, prudent and sometimes brutal and scoring 150 not out and England were saved. So that's absolutely extraordinary. That's typical cricket. I've been at cricket games, which honestly, just thinking of them makes my, my spine tingle. Uh, the day when there were four innings in the day at Lords against the West Indies. And I've been very lucky. I've been to loads of great moments of cricket, but this is a game that ended in a draw. <laughs> And yet, it is, I think, the single greatest performance I saw by any cricketer on the pitch. Um, you, you picked a second uh, cricket one as well. We may as well stick with the cricket and move on to the football. Yep. This is against England at the Oval Again. in, in 2013. <laughs> Why did you fall in love with cricket? Um, because I, I, first of all, because I couldn't understand it. And therefore, since I'm curious by nature, I wanted to know why are people getting so excited about this weird game? And I had a, a, a teacher who was, um, at the time I was, I arrived in London because I was and I still am a musician. And uh, the person, the ANR, who signed me to an English label um, called Michael Way, and he was a cricket nut. And he kept talking about cricket. And I said, you know, why keep talking about cricket? And he explained, he said, well, he said, 
It's chess on grass. Right. <laughs> and I'm a very keen chess player. I was actually quite a, a good club player at the time. And I thought I've got to, to know more about that. Then I went to see a game. Uh, it was at, at Lords between Middlesex and Warwickshire. And I was sitting quite next to the pitch. And this is where I realized that, my goodness, this is fast. This is incredibly technical. And this is extremely dangerous. Because I think Wayne Daniel was bowling that day and he was bowling at 90 miles an hour. I'm thinking, what, how, how is this possible? Uh, and they looked frightened, some of the batsmen. So there is more to this game. <laughs> and then I started playing it very quickly. And um, since I was a decent tennis player, I realized, you know, I could actually time the ball a little bit. And, you know, you get the bug. I started reading about it, discovered that cricket is also one of those games um, which has inspired some of the greatest sports writing ever. And you put all this together and uh, the attraction of exoticism as well, because I was unused to sports where uh, the, the main powers were like India and Pakistan. You know, that that's something that is simply not the case anywhere else apart, apart from hockey. So there's all this. It's a fascination. And I had the, I caught the bug. I still have it more than ever. And uh, I have to say that there is no day that I look more in the sporting calendar than that the uh, first day that I spent at Lords for the Test match, which I've done religiously for a number of years now. F Philippe, this second pick is uh, Kumar Sangakara, 134 yeah. not out versus England at the Oval. This was uh, 10 years ago, June 2013. Like, I'm curious, when, when there are opposition performances like Sangakara or Kadir at the Oval, what, what, what's the atmosphere like amongst the, the, the English fans? Like, is it, is it, a, is it respectful? Is it uh, almost awe at what an opposition player is doing? Yeah. Or is, it, is or, it quite the opposite? Awe, awe is the right word. Uh, first of all, obviously, cricket um, publics and crowds are very different from other crowds. Because I think that even though you might have an incredibly strong link with your own team, and I do have an incredibly strong link with, with the England team, um, your those link is even stronger to the truth of the game and um which is why when you have had the privilege of watching i don't know sunil gavaskar bat uh, or mohammed azaruddin or you've seen shane warm bowl or you know i could go on like this forever there is a, again a greater truth and cricket is perhaps better to recognize it than recognizing it than other games and therefore, at the beginning, you're really quite annoyed because <laughs> you want them out. You want them smashed to all parts of the ground. And then you realize, well, no, actually, this is pretty special. And in the case of Kumar Sangakara, I mean, it was a one-day international as well, which is pretty unusual for me because I, I go to test matches rather than one day. One thing is that from the very beginning of that, uh, of that innings, uh, I think everybody around the ground realized oh, my goodness, this is a little bit different. Um, I've seen more spectacular innings uh, with perhaps uh, more memorable shots. I have never seen an innings in which a batsman was so much in control of what he was doing. And it's a point where you don't just applaud the beautiful shots, and there were plenty of those because, you know, Sangakara was a, a beautiful and such an elegant player and technically perfect. Uh, even when he was blocking the ball, it was great because this was a master in total control uh, of his art again. And the impression, uh, there, there was a certain, the, the, at times in the cricket, there was a certain dignity about some performances. It's like there is a, almost like a, a moral authority to, to an innings. 
And this was the case. I mean, Sengakara, I think anybody who follows cricket will agree that he's one, one of the true greats. And I was lucky to see him uh, perhaps at, at the very top of his game where he made it look so simple, where, you know, the arc of the bat was hitting the ball for either for a cover drive or an off drive or even a pull, which is perfection. And, 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 the crowd responded to to that, you know, enthusiastically. He got an ovation for his for his hundred, and you know that won the game. Finished 134 not out, if I'm not mistaken, and um, um, Sri Lanka um, went through. And um, it was um, and it was coming, by the way, on on the back of a game in which the England bowlers had been extremely good and had been totally on top of things. This time, that that was not the case, and. Uh, uh, you know, Jimmy Anderson was bowling, uh, Graham Swan was bowling, but Sega Kara was just, you know, was the master at work, judging absolutely every single ball on its merits and finding a solution. You know, I mean, he probably faced, what, 150 balls. I don't have the stats in my head. But every single one of those was perfectly judged, um, either blocked or let it go or just hit it. Uh, just, yeah, magnificence, elegance, authority, and also humility, because Sangakara is not one of those players who, you know, will make a lot of what he does. Is uh, that's his nature? Um, um, he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to. Can I ask you a question about your appreciation for this? Um, you mentioned that you were a musician. I suspect most of the people who've been listening to you speaking to us for the last twenty odd years on off the ball didn't realise that you have uh, an alternative <laughs> exterior yes. life. Um, does your appreciation for sport and the way you've spoken about it is is very specific? Is it is it different? Do you think because of your background as a musician? Possibly because of that, not my background. Full stop. Because um, I, by training, I'm a ph- philosopher and um, philosophy teacher. Rather, philosopher. I won't use that word. Philosophy teacher. So I do look at things perhaps uh, perhaps a bit differently from some other people who do not have this kind of training. And then there's the music as well. And I think perhaps because of the type of music I do and the type of musician I am, I'm more sensitive to craftsmanship, uh, not just artistry, but craftsmanship and what the uh, amount of skill that you need to do something well and the amount of skill you need to have to go beyond the point where people realize you have skill, that you master it to such an extent that it becomes natural. And people say effortless, uh, which is the wrongest term to use <laughs> in uh, in any kind of sport, because this is effortlessness is just the produce of incredibly hard work. And when uh, multiple intellectual calculations and an extraordinary uh, communi- level of communication between the brain and, and the limbs and the body as a whole uh, takes you somewhere else where you're totally, totally on top of what you do. And which obviously music is absolutely crucial. If you want to, you know, the greatest virtuosi are not people who give you the impression they're really struggling through Sibelius' violin concerto, right? Uh, but believe me, they did in the past when they started to learn that. Uh, but then you can get to that level which is what you should aspire to as an artist. And I believe that great sports people are, are people who precisely give this impression of, of uh, ease and effortlessness. Uh, you know, it's like Usain Bolt. 
people think, oh, he's cruising to victory. No, he's not cruising to victory. No, he's not cruising to victory. He's been working like mad. He's, he's fab- phenomenally talented, yes, but he's been working like mad to make sure he could be that person who can fly um, on the asphalt or whatever it's called these days and, uh, and, and be faster than anybody else. And, and these are the, the moments when you see a, a sports person being able to, to be in communication with his own or, or their own art is, is something extra special. Um, and Kumar Sangakara, that, that innings was one of those moments. That's so fascinating because Ronnie O'Sullivan, I've heard of an interview with him recently where he compared playing snooker to being a violinist in an orchestra where he, ah. you know, connecting music to shots uh, and how he sometimes does that in his head, which completely ties yeah. into what you're talking about with cricket. It's, it's a fascinating area, I think. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised because he can give the impression of being effortless, can't he? Mm-hmm. And, um, and also because... I think that the, the, also the beauty of his game perhaps has got something to do with it, that because it is so beautiful, um, you think it's easy. You think, oh, oh, these people are just super talented. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, they, well, they are super talented, but the way they work, their bodies and their brains work, is a produce of um, not just gift, but an extraordinary dedication to your, to your own art. And I use the word art, you know, a lot, because uh, the artistic dimension of sport is something that, uh, for me, is absolutely... Uh, prevalent and which is why there are some great sportsmen and great teams that really leave me totally cold yeah i won't give names well because i (laughs) I don't find it you know i because to me you know it doesn't matter it doesn't have really any value terry Henry is on your list so he obviously does not yeah well that's less of a surprise (laughs) (laughs) yeah well, he's on my list, and again, it could have been a few performances there. But the game, the game against Liverpool um, uh, in the two thousand three two thousand four season. Um, but the one I've, I've chosen is because it was perhaps his masterpiece, uh, which was uh, February two thousand and six. Uh, a very young. Uh, Arsenal team goes to the Bernabeu, is not given a chance. It's in the Champions League, of course. It's not given a chance there. And we have the Cherry masterclass. <laughs> um, and again, somebody who seems uh, taller than anybody else on the pitch, uh, stronger than anybody else on the pitch, cleverer than anybody else on the pitch. Um, and everybody around him, certainly in the Arsenal side, is taking their cue from him. And uh, this is not, by the way, uh, a small Real Madrid team. Even if some of the uh, some of the players are past their best, um, but you've got Duties there, Zinedine Zidane is there, Robinho is there, Raúl is there, Ronaldo, David Beckham, Roberto Carlos, uh, also Jonathan Woodgate. Amazingly enough, he didn't last long. Um, and in fact, of that, in fact, in fact, in fact uh, across the pitch from them. Uh, you've got an Arsenal team which has a back four, uh, which is Ebwe, Toure, Sander, Ross, Flamini. So you don't give them much of a chance, uh, you know, against the uh, the Galacticos. But but Thierry was just sublime uh, all through the game, and obviously the moment that sticks out is this uh, this goal, which I think everybody's seen, where he picks the ball. I think Jess Fabregas gives him the ball just past the halfway line, and then suddenly you see all these Real Madrid players. Uh, falling like nine pins and or not knowing what to do or uh, and he's, he's totally toying with them and he slots the ball almost nonchalantly in the Terry fashion 
in a typical Thierry Henry finish, which is slightly to the left of the box, angled in the in the far corner. There's nothing you can do about that. And again, people will say, oh, you know, it comes so easily to Thierry. No, 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 no. Because uh, I've talked to, to Thierry about that kind of goal, and he explained to me, you know what, the reason why I find the net is because when I was at Monaco uh, at the time, I think he was working with uh, Rémy Garde at the time, uh, or Claude Puel, he was working with Claude Puel, and he said, we must have done this thousands of times. He would stay over after training, and they would exactly rehearse that particular um, passage of play where he gets the ball on the left wing, goes back inside, and the shot across, and he beats the keeper every single time. And you could see, I mean, even the, um, I mean, I went absolutely berserk. I was in the, in the press box, which is very, very bad, very bad indeed. <laughs> um, but we were encouraged by that, by the behavior of our Spanish colleagues. We were just above us at the Bernabeu and who were cheering everything. And we thought after a while, you know, sod it. Uh, we're going to be Spanish about this. And we all jumped up and uh, celebrated like mad uh, this, this, this goal. Um, which was just uh, after the um, uh, beginning of the second half, and uh, and the, the Real Madrid uh, audience, to give them their credit, actually applauded. And um, after the game, I remember going um, with my friend Amy Lawrence, you know, um, probably yeah, yeah. you know of the Guardian, and and a few other gooners. Uh, we met in a bar in um, uh, in central Madrid, and we thought, mm, okay, we've just beaten them. What what's it going to be like? And in fact, people came to us and shook us by the hand and said, "Guys, you've got the greatest player on the planet. <laughs> oh, we we wish we had him. We wish we had him." Uh, which was very generous and very typical. It has to be said of Real Madrid fans, and and it was not just the goal, but I think there is another uh, moment in that game which shows how much Thierry was in, in charge of everything. Uh, Arsenal were leading 1-0. Uh, Real Madrid were trying to have a go. But he got the ball. So it was in the dying minutes oh, of yeah. the game. So it was all about... You, you know the one? Yeah, I'm talking he runs about. past Ramos like he's not there. Yeah, and he just literally pushes the ball alongside the, the touchline. And it, he's, he, run, he runs past him. And the guy's just like, what? Who is what does that thing? Then he goes to the towards the uh, uh, the corner flag. And uh, and he, he gets um, uh, a throw-in for for Arsenal, and his exp- the expression on his face as well is is magnificent. Well, he looks like he's because, not out of breath whatsoever. He, he, no, it's like that's easy. <laughs> Just like the way he celebrated his goals, because he's no, he's not known apart from the famous goal against Tottenham as somebody who really explodes when he when he scores. He's somebody always somebody who tries to uh, or tried, unfortunately, uh, to. Um, to keep it within himself and to concentrate on, on the next goal. And he's never happy with himself, never, ever. And even on this occasion, you know, at Santiago Bernabeu, in, in the uh, ground of a club, which, by the way, had tried to sign him a number of times before, and he had given a demonstration on the pitch of exactly why they were right to chase him. And we were extremely lucky to still have him at the Arsenal. Um, he, he owned the pitch. Which is something which is very rare in in a team sport because you you could think that for example uh, you would think of um, some of Lionel Messi's greatest performances or Michel Platini's greatest performances or, or Ronaldo Fenomeno uh, greatest performances and thinking well that was really illuminated the, the the game. There are very few instances where it's almost down to a single player. Yeah, that the player. I mean, 
it's not to say that the other 10 players, um, actually uh, 13 players, 14 players, because there were some subs, uh, didn't do their job uh, beautifully, which they did. It was just that he was on a different plane. And um, it, it was a territory had at the time people were starting to wonder if his powers were waning a little bit. Oh, no, they weren't. Um, I, I'm not surprised Thierry Henry made your list. I have to say, I did have a little bit of a giggle when I saw Clint Dempsey. <laughs> Clint yeah. Dempsey is on your list for Fulham 4 Juventus 1 in 2010. Yeah, and um, I have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. Um, my, I surprised myself because um, Clint Dempsey actually only played 29 minutes of that game as well. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, why did I choose that? Because of all uh, the sporting events I've been at, this was the most emotional moment that I've lived was when Clint Dempsey scored in the 82nd minute of that tie against Juve. I have never experienced anything like it in terms of a communion between the players and the crowd and the reporters and the stewards. We were literally dancing on in Craven Cottage, in the press box, which is that there's not a press box in Craven Cottage. You've got wooden benches and you're sat there. You've got absolutely no room. You're trying, your laptop is uh, balanced on your knees. And I remember, um, I think I jumped in the arms of a steward who was next to me. And so did all the journalists around us. because We were perfectly placed. You know, it's one of those moments when, you know, you're exactly at the right place in the stadium where you can see the arc of the ball, you see absolutely everything, and you're exactly, you could draw a line between where the ball nestles in the, in, in the net, the shot, and yourself. It's a straight line. So the best angle possible. And the fact that it was a lob makes it even nicer because you had the times that it's coming. Oh, it's, oh, oh, it's in. And... Um, and it capped an absolutely unforget- unforgettable um, uh, evening. Uh, Fulham were not supposed to... I mean, they'd done already fantastically well to reach that stage in the competition. They were against Juve. Now, OK, they were, uh, uh, there was a sending off of Cannavaro, blah, blah. But they still had to win 4-1. And they did win 4-1. And Clint Dempsey, bless him, scored that fourth goal. And for that reason... It's, uh, I had to pick him. Fair enough. Um, we're nearly out of time, but I do want to do some justice to this because it's N'Golo Kante, again in a losing performance. You've, you've picked yeah. something out that you think is emblematic of, emblematic of something. And, and actually, there's a, a supercut on... Um, I searched for this performance. Somebody's put a supercut together of all his touches, and it's amazing. He is amazing in this game. I've got to watch that again because um, I, it was Leicester um, was visiting uh, Arsenal and uh, they lost that game really at the last gasp, um, 2-1. And actually, at the time, people thought, well, maybe that's the moment when uh, Leicester's, you know, mm-hmm. rush for the title is coming to an end, and Arsenal, are, are, you know, scored an absolutely magnificent goal to, to win. But I don't think that any of us was prepared from, for N'Golo Kante, because hardly any of us had seen him before. You know, he'd arrived from French second division, Okay, he'd been playing a few games and people were talking, saying, have you seen that midfielder? He's a bit special. And to see N'Golo Kante in the flesh for the first time was a revelation. And all of us, I mean, what I would call seasoned observers of the game in the press box, 
we're all looking at each other and all saying, you seen that counter guy? You seen that counter guy? I remember one thing, one moment in particular. Uh, he intercepted the ball, I think, uh, just outside uh, of uh, his box, of the Leicester box, uh, on the right-hand side. And I thought, mm, that's pretty, pretty impressive. I just uh, looked down and typed just like, uh, I don't know, 27th minute Kante interception. Just I put my, looked up, so where is he? Oh, my goodness, he's there. He's, he's uh, managed, he, he's found the way to transport himself through space and time <laughs> without me realizing it. And he was then doing exactly the same thing on the other side of the pitch, like 50 yards ahead. And then I started watching literally just him and I realized, oh, it's not just the fact that he runs very quickly. It's not just the fact that he's incredibly strong for somebody of such small stature. It's because every single movement that that player does on the pitch is the consequence of perfect reading of what is happening around him. This guy has got one of the greatest football brains I've ever seen. He knows how to be in the right place at the right time. Now, Claude Makélélé had it as well, you know, in this kind of... But Claude Makélélé didn't quite have the kind of percussion, the kind of energy, um, almost kinetic energy, that Golo Kante could, you know, exude on, on the pitch. because, And also, he was a beautiful passer of the ball uh, outside of the boot, inside of the boot. Uh, he could pass first time. Uh, he knew when to pass the ball back, but he was also looking constantly, can I hit one of my midfielders? Can I hit Jamie Vardy or whoever up front? All the time. And one-to-one, -one, uh, no problem. He will he will win them all. But he was a big, ubiquitous. And, and it was a revelation that, my goodness, here is a very, very special player, which is which is lovely, by the way, when this happens. You're at a game, you don't know that player, and suddenly that player jumps out, you know, which is exactly, by the way, what I felt when I first saw Gabriel Martinelli in the Europa League for Arsenal later on. I thought, yeah. That's, this player is just amazing. And, but Angelo Conte, my goodness, what can you say? And then from then on, he became the greatest uh, midfielder on the planet. Philippe, that was a sensational episode of You Had to Be There. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your memories. Cheers. Oh, no problem at all. My pleasure. It's so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. I had to be there. Right, that was sensational. Um, do look up that uh, video of um, Conte in that performance. Uh, whoever cut it up, it might have been. It could have been an agent trying to get him a move to Chelsea. It obviously worked. Uh, a league title that year and as he said best midfielder on the planet for I do wonder what would have happened if he'd been fully fit over the last couple yeah, of years 100%. what what sliding doors moments it would have been for club and country but we will never know OTBAM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night edition available now on tomorrow's show Paul Galvin and Alan Quinlan uh, we're going all in on Ireland's uh, Grand Slam on Monday morning show that's it that's exactly what we're doing right now Stigma Rugby, our own Dara smith Nocton's chat with Ian Keatley. Have a super time on this St. Patrick's Day Eve. Okay, you're very welcome back to OTB AM. I'm here with Ian Keatley, man himself. How are you, Ian? I'm good there, how's things? Not too bad, not too bad. Thanks for playing. Thanks for taking the time with me. I presume, like the rest of us, you tuned in on Sunday to the game. What did you think? Yeah, it was, it was some game, wasn't it? So, um... It had all the range of emotions, the the questions, what are they going to do? But ultimately, Ireland came up with the answers, didn't they? And it's 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 actually so nice to watch an Ireland team and all these things happen to them and, and they just know how to respond and they didn't panic. And 
just finish off finish off the game so strong. You think Scotland in the first half they were quite creative. They were making chances. They scored one nice try with with Hugh Jones, and you're like, oh, they're going to get another few chances. And then you see Ireland. I think it was after 20 minutes. I was watching them. The Scottish and the Irish teams were they're both out in their feet, <laughs> which which when you're watching on TV, you don't understand. You don't see it from TV the intensity and the hits and how much work is being done. But for Ireland, like to finish off the second half, they just looked like they're getting stronger and stronger, even with all the all the stuff that was going on. And I, I know chatting to Paul O'Connell, like they they strive for this unbelievable fitness, this next level fitness, and it just it, you could just see it in the match that Scotland just had no they had no answers. A very hectic game, I suppose, especially with the injuries very early on. And probably the biggest talking point from the game was uh, Van de Fleer and Keane Healy sharing the hooker duties. Something I did want to ask you was um, if there was ever a scenario in your international career where yeah, you know, the coach asked you or the captain asked you, you know, can we stick you in a certain position? What is What would be the last position you'd want to end up at during a game like that? I know yourself being a bit of a utility back at times. Yeah, but obviously, if you're you should be back, I think anywhere in the front row, if you're gonna if you're gonna be asked to play play there, um, it's actually I've never had it. I never had it in my um, international career. I played. I was actually a sub one time for for Ireland, and I came on the, on the wing um, against Italy. I think it was 2017. I came on the wing. I think it was when uh, Craig Gilroy came on and scored the scored the hat trick. So um, I came on then on the wing, uh, but no, never. I played at number nine for a club for for Munster. Uh, played at twelve. I've played at full back. So, but never nothing in the forwards. Now I don't think. <laughs> I think I stayed well away from there. But like on, on that thing with Keane Ely, like Keane Ely played. He was on my senior schools team, um, and he actually played hooker. But we had three really good props. Keane was one of them, and just to try and get them all on the pitch, we put. Uh, Keen in hooker but our number eight actually threw in the ball he was a very good thrower as well so um, yeah so funny enough like Keen I, I know it's completely different from schools level to to the peak international but he had played there before and I think chatting to him at the start of the year they, they actually did want him to try and go into hooker and uh, not to throw in but but for this reason and uh, so I think I know we're all saying that it's been crazy that Keen had to go in hooker but I think it's just really good planning from from the from the Irish coaches that that they've had this plan because if obviously if Keane wasn't able to go in hooker they would have to go down to fourteen men. So it's I think it it's all, I think I know everyone's saying like it was great by Keane and Josh, but I think it's all been a touch of class from the coaching staff that they knew that these possibilities could happen. That if we lose two hookers, um, we need someone to be able to go in hooker and and even if you if you look at Josh's throwing. It was spot on the money. Like the, it wasn't a wobbly ball. It wasn't the rotations on the ball were perfect. So I, I'd be very shocked if he hadn't been practicing as well. Certainly is a testament to Andy Farrell's brilliance and how how important from an outsider's perspective of someone who's been in that squad. How important is a coach and a coach like Andy Farrell to the success of an Ireland team? Because Ireland at the moment are probably the best place they've been. A lot of people are saying ever. So, how how important is a coach that set up? Yeah, I think he's done an unbelievable job. Work, worked with um, 
with Andy Farrell before and he came into Munster and like he's he's a straight shooter but like he he gets his points across nothing ever phases him or panic and it's all about just it's almost like just get the job done um, but you can you can really see from this this team that they've they've really they don't let anything panic them but they still have plans for the worst case scenarios and I just know in the future when or in the past when Irish teams are going well and people go oh well they haven't been tested or they haven't faced you can't say that about this Irish team have you um, like they've gone down to New Zealand they've they've won a series down there back against the wall against Scotland they've um, like they beef, they've beaten number two in the world in France now probably people will be like oh well they haven't beaten France in the Stade de France that's probably their next question mark that 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 someone will bring up or or like they they just they just seem to have everything covered every every base covered um, and they've just got really good strength and depth and they're playing they're not playing negative rugby they're playing really smart intelligent rugby like people saying like oh they've gone away from the kicking game they haven't if we watch how that game swung on the weekend it was that contestable that was put in just outside the 22 just outside the 22 and I remember the commentators going what are they doing doing a contestable and then Matt Hansen gets up wins it momentum completely changed and a few more like they score so um they're just a very smart team. They're just playing to the space. They're creating good space, but they're just, they're really good decision makers on the pitch. And obviously, do you look at a team like that and think, you know, yourself, you're two years younger than the than the starting fly half at the moment. Do you feel like a bit of, not so much jealousy as much as um, envy just to play in a team like that uh, with the, with the form they're playing on? Yeah, yeah, of course. Like I think every player, whether they're starting off in their career, they're during their career at the moment, or if they've just retired, like you could even look at like, okay, yeah, myself, or even if you look at like Jamie Heaslip or Roy Best, who have just recently retired as well. Um, I'd say they'd be quite envious and like, well, that that game plan, the way that they're playing, looks quite enjoyable. So. Yeah, you do get a bit of envy, of course. Um, I think I think that's the competitor in in all, not just rugby players, but all sports. Mm. Like you always want to, you always want to be involved in the good times or playing on good teams or playing attractive styles. So, yeah, there is a bit of bit enviness now. I, I don't lose sleep over it or anything like that. But mm. yeah, you do. You kind of wish that you'd you, you'd played in a team like that. Um, one to fifteen, one to twenty-three. There, there's no let up. So, um, but I'm starting to like I've retired nearly two years. So I used to, I'm starting to come across more so as starting to become a fan again. Kind of taking myself out of the rugby side and going, okay, I'm actually enjoying the way they're playing, trying to dissect what they're doing, and going, to, that's that's very good what they're doing there. It's very clever. It's so, uh, but the thing is, everything that they're doing, it's not complicated. They've just it's really simple basics done really, really well and good decision makers on the pitch under that pressure. Like, I think Mike Tyson's favourite saying is everyone's got a plan until they get hit in the face, but this these guys have a good plan and they're executing it while getting punched in the face. So, Were you ever tempted to make the move to Leinster at any point in your career, being from Dublin yourself? Especially... Uh, 
It's never so. so it's, I, yeah, I went to I went to Connacht um, for three seasons, and then at the end of my well, uh, in my third, my last season, I got offers to go to Leinster or, or to Munster, and um, Joe Schmidt was on to me saying, "Oh, listen, Johnny, he Johnny kind of just came through then." He wasn't like when I went to Connacht, like he wasn't the starting uh, guy in Leinster. He still had like Contipomi there and uh, stuff like that. So he had only, he was only kind of just coming through. So uh, I remember Joe Schmidt rang me up and said, Oh, would you be interested in coming back to Leinster? You're from Dublin. Uh, come back home. Uh, it'll be you and Johnny Sexton competing against each other. Um, and then I kind of like, took the phone call and just had sat down and thought about it. But my thinking of it was if, if I went down to Munster, obviously I could sit behind uh, Raj for a year or two, learn off him. Um, but then like Raj was like 11 years older than me. So I was there going, I like Raj's not going to be around forever. And then once Raj is gone, like I felt there's a big opportunity there to, to cement, cement myself as obviously first, first choice for Munster and um, that was it was more like don't get me wrong I'd love to have come home to to like <laughs> your your family your friends your, your mom and dad like because ultimately that's that's they, they, they're the people who've shaped you for your, since you've been what for your first 20 21 years of my life um, so I had it was a tough talk but I just thought Munster was a great club uh, really good people you had like unbelievable players there. And I just thought that I could go there and have have a really good career there with, with learning from Raj. But then when Raj moved on that, hopefully that I could become the number one. So that was the, the it was more business kind of decision rather than going home decision. I wanted to talk about your Connacht days. You mentioned it there. It's kind of, for me personally, as a guy with a, with a dad from Roscommon, I went to a lot of games growing up in the sports ground and you were a bit of a, I would, I would myself label you as a, an adopted local star. When I was younger, I didn't even realize you were from Dublin. It just seemed like this was Connacht's uh, star boy. Do you look back on those days with a, uh, with gratitude and even a little bit of regret you may haven't just stuck it out one or two seasons longer? No, um, I, I, I loved Connacht. Um, I loved so I worked with um, Eric Elwood and Dan McFarland um, with the Ireland under twenties, and we won a Grand Slam with Ireland under twenties in two thousand and seven, I think it was. Yeah. So then uh, went back uh, to Leinster and I had a really bad injury in my back, and we couldn't. We got scans, we got everything, we couldn't. They couldn't decipher what it was and then I remember I kind of fell out with the Leinster physios because they, they almost said that I was faking it and I was like this was the Leinster physio at the time and I was like I'm not faking this like why would I fake this anyway I went to see my own specialist and he said I'll get you right so did really work with him a guy called Mike Carswell actually a lot of the Leinster players still go to him um, and then um, got better working with Dan Tobin and then Eric and Dan, even though I had a poor season that season, just through injury, Eric and Dan said, listen, would you still like to come to Connacht? Like we've got full potential in you. 
um, talked to Leinster there saying like you'll be staying you'll stay in the academy for one more year and then you progress on but I'd saw like players like Fionn Carr who had done three years in the Leinster academy and then kind of been let go and I was like I don't want to be let go and like this could be my only opportunity so when they said to come down to Connacht for a full contract, like that's that's what you dream as, like when you're a youngster, so just being able to play professional rugby. So Connacht gave me that chance to become uh, a professional, uh, and as Andy Dunn was to attend there at the time, and I just knew that I was going to get loads of game time, um, and I, I ended up doing it in three seasons. I played like eighty matches for for Connacht. Um, Played in some unbelievable experiences, matches. Played against Johnny Wilkinson, my my childhood hero, uh, for for Toulon in the semi final of European Cup, and absolutely loved the experience of and what they were kind of selling to me that they had a three year plan to grow and develop uh, this team around the likes of myself, Sean Crone and Fionn Carr. They obviously had Gavin Duffy and John Muldoon there at the time, um, so you you kind of got excited by what they're trying to sell you. But after three years, it was kind of, we had, we still had good success, but I just felt that it was kind of now or never. I was 24 to 23, 24. What, what was it the best for me to, to move on? And especially when I was living with Sean Cronin and Fionn Carr and they all have offers to move on as well. And you're kind of discussing that. What's the best. And I think Sean, well, the three of us discussed that it's probably the best for the, three of us to move on which was tough for Connacht that that the three of us kind of moved on all together because but we had to kind of take it be a bit selfish and think about ourselves so I did want to ask you if there was um, a moment or a game or an accolade that you, you if I'm, I'm going to make you pick one that you could remember for the rest of your life which 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 one would it be uh, oh god I can't pick one. That's pretty hard. Like, I said, like, force here. Yeah, I know. Yeah, because you're involved in so many. Like, like the two thousand. Like, I was involved in 2018 Grand Slam, but I didn't set foot in the field on the on the field. So you're like, okay, you're kind of proud of being involved in it, but like, okay, then and then, like, there's so many achievements with uh, with Monster, but they're not trophies. So you're like, okay, are they? Like, do you want to like look at them? And then you start going back to like your your early start of your career. Like, I won a Grand Slam with the Ireland under twenties. Won a like a Leinster School Senior Cup, which like back then, like I, I was went into the school when I was nine, ten. All you're all you're living up for is Senior Cup. You like so like that's an unbelievable. Um, now now it's change obviously but like back then that that was the biggest thing in the world to win a Lens School Senior Cup and then to win uh, an Ireland under 20 Grand Slam Um, I think it was the first time Ireland had won a Grand Slam at, at underage against two teams who like it was under 20s but they were just changing from under 21 to under 20 so France and England both played or France and Italy I think both played under 21 teams Um. So to beat them, that was incredible. And then, yeah, at the end, the next year, getting your first Irish cap um, was pretty impressive. But also, like, when everyone thought that my career was kind of done and to come back and then to to be involved in that Ireland under, uh, Ireland 
2018 Grand Grand Slam. That's that like that's an achievement for me because everyone said that I was I was done in 2015 and 16. I got booed off against Leicester. Um, so for me to to come back from where I was in a pretty dark place, wanting to give up rugby, um, for me to come back from that and to get back to play for Ireland, um, that's kind of a an achievement without. Uh, like actually lifting a trophy or something like that. So I'm kind of like proud of those little things from from where you know where you where I knew I was mentally and wanting to give up to fight and to get back and to um as I said that's that was that was an achievement for me just to to come out of that dark place. And um I mentioned earlier you're only <laughs> you're only thirty five at the moment, two years younger than Johnny Sexton. You're playing in the Irish Legends versus English Legends game on Paddy's Day. It's almost weird to call you an Irish legend at the age of 35. Mm. Do you think that's a bit of a strange one for yourself to be called an Irish legend? Yeah, I probably do feel a bit young to be playing it, but I like, first of all, it's for like, it's a great cause. Like, you're, you're, you're playing, and especially this year, like, um, with with the passing away as well, like someone I've worked with quite closely over the last two years, Tom Tierney, um, like we'll be playing for, playing for him and even Brian O'Brien who passed, passed away, who was a, who was a legend down in Limerick. Um, but yeah, the, me and Tom, like I played in it last year as well. And Tom said that he was going to get the um, video of it and analyze my, uh, my play and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, so, it is a bit of a, a weird one, but you just remember it's for a cause. And John, I actually miss playing. I miss playing playing rugby. I always hop in like I'm coaching now, and I always try and like come in at training and like just <laughs> the fifty twenty two rule only came in there since I retired, so I wouldn't mind hitting one of them in the in the matches because um, that's <laughs> I always do it when I come in training and hit a fifty twenty hit a fifty twenty two, and it's a, it's just. It's a nice, it's a nice feeling. So I'd love to hit one of them in the Legends match, but um, yeah, it's it's for a good cause and a good reason. You get to play with other players like like you haven't played with, like I haven't played with uh, a few of those players since, like I haven't played with Sean Cronin and Fionn Carr since the Connacht days. Um, Sean O'Brien, yeah, I played with him at Ireland, but the main thing when I played with Sean O'Brien was uh, back when we won that Grand Slam. Um. So uh, it's it's nice to play with all these guys. And then you've got like Shane Byrne and Gordon Darcy who are all like legends of Ireland rugby. I think it's it's a cool experience and it's not too taxing on the body. You mentioned uh, missing your playing days. I saw last year or the, towards the end of last year, you picked up GEA hmm. and you tweeted out, um, it was your first game. It was like, it's a 35, it's hardly your first game at GEA. <laughs> but uh, how did you find... The, the the switch over it actually was my first ever game yeah um, just you know yourself when you're younger you, you kind of it's whatever your parents get you get you into or whatever your friends are doing so uh, I used to play like um, soccer and, and rugby and tennis when I was younger so I never got into just didn't have the time for it um, so I absolutely loved it and another reason I, I tweeted as like I have like two kids and like I, well, first my, but the boy, uh, Quinn, he, he never saw me play rugby because he was only born there, um, two years ago. And 
Beth, my daughter, she saw me play over in Italy, but she can't really remember. And then COVID struck, so she never got to see me play then after that. So I was kind of, it's like I wanted to pick up a sport just so they could actually like see me playing something. And also another reason that I want to play in this Legends match as well is like, so like they're coming up to watch and because they know that I'm still heavily involved in rugby and like they've they've seen videos of me playing. So I kind of just, I'm looking forward to like getting out in the pitch and then even bringing them onto the pitch afterwards. Just uh, I, I I just love when I see that after matches because that's the main reason why why you play and stuff like that. So uh, so to go back to playing in a hand, it's, it's two minutes down the road, and I just want to keep active. And a hand is a it's a it's a really nice. We're, we're in the hand community. It's a really good community, and it's um, just want to yeah keep playing, keep fit. Will the kids be a bit confused as to whether to pick up a, a rugby yeah. ball or a, or a gal ball at this stage? Ah, yeah. Well, listen, at this stage, you don't really mind what what they do as long as they're playing sport and they're happy. Um, but like you have that, like you look at like a lot of um, rugby players now, they have that multi-sport disciplinary um, like Rob Carney with his GAA background, uh, Robbie Henshaw, like any sport that a kid plays now, it's, it's, it's going to help you. Just, just make sure that you're enjoying it and play as much sport as you can, I think. Look, I'm a huge fan, Ian, and I really appreciate the time. Um, thanks, Emil. It's been great. No worries there. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now.